You're not the devil. You're practice. Are you so desperate to fight criminals that you lock yourself in to take them on one at a time? What chance does Gotham have when the good people do nothing? People need dramatic examples to shake them out of apathy, and I can't do that as Bruce Wayne. Where were the other drugs going? I swear to God. I swear to me. I don't care if it's rival gangs, guardian angels, or the goddamn Salvation Army. Get them off the street. Bruce, this is Harvey Dent. Some men aren't looking for anything logical, like money. They can't be bought, bullied, reasoned, or negotiated with. Some men just want to watch the world burn. I'm a man of my word. <laughs> Those mob fools want you gone so they can get back to the way things were. But I know the truth. There's no going back. You've changed things. Forever. Don't talk like one of them. You're not. You'll know that I'm telling the truth. I pulled him out. He was babbling about an underground army, a masked man called Bane. Why are you here? Maybe it's time we all stop trying to outsmart the truth and let it have its day. Goodbye, Alfred. Let's not stand on ceremony here, Mr. Wayne. to Trinus Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and I talk about movies. Or so one would think by listening to the shows that I've done lately, because lately I've been talking all about movies. So I guess this is the, the podcast for movies that guys that like movies and stuff. So pretty straightforward, really. Been... Uh, talking in great detail, some would say unnecessary detail, about the Chris Nolan Batman trilogy. Now, for those of you who don't know, I've had what I think you could accurately call a sort of uneasy relationship with the Chris Nolan trilogy. There are times when I tolerate it. There are, there, are, God knows, there have been times when I, I guess to be polite, maybe can't tolerate it. All in all, it's been a sort of uneasy relationship. And so what I wanted to do was basically take not necessarily a fond look back at the Chris Nolan trilogy, but a fair look back, you know, an objective look back, basically be mature and rational about it. This isn't going to be an excuse to throw temper tantrums or use a lot of potty language or basically anything else that seems to have defined my show over the years. This is basically supposed to be a chance to sort of bypass those things and I guess for lack of a better way of expressing it, act like an adult for once. And so what I've done is recruit not just anybody, but what I've done is actually recruit a very specific co-host. Basically what I wanted was a guest who could help me assist me, you might even say lead by example when it comes to uh, being a little bit more diplomatic, I suppose. So it is with great pleasure 
And with considerable delight that I welcome back to the show for the first time since the last time, the host and founder of the Quarterbin Podcast, the co-host and co-founder of the Short Box Showcase, the co-host and co-founder of Dorkness to Light, and also I think the co-blogger now that I think about it. Anyway, Professor... Alan of the Relatively Geeky Network. Welcome back to the show, sir. How are you? Great. Great to be back. Loving this. And just to, uh, you know, you, you've talked about, you know, how far in advance you record these, and I have no idea when this is coming out. But just for context, we're recording this episode in between the Republican and Democratic National Conventions. <laughs> so I just think it's fair to say that high-level intellectual dispassionate conversation is just in the air oh yeah i mean that's just what so we're just tapping in to what's going on in the current climate yeah right sure (laughs) well yeah i mean right now i think it would be safe to say that america is being characterized by a very aloof very calm very measured very erudite tone in the discourse and so as you say this is going to be a perfect fit Just substitute one for the other, really. Good lord, yeah, it's been a real freak show, hasn't it? And it's just getting started. I know, and I'm loving it, too. I'm loving it. But, you know, I must say, when we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, I must say that there's a school of thought that says that, you know, to even talk about partisan politics, even if it's in the abstract, is a little bit off base and normally it would be but i am not the only one who detects one might say a little bit of political subtext to this movie so perhaps this is the perfect time for you and me to record this i have no idea so what are we going to be talking about today professor i believe we're going to be talking about the dark knight rises the dark knight rises now you went on the record pretty early on that this is your favorite movie in the history of all time everything ever now and forever, world without end, amen. Well, that was the dark night. Oh, right. <laughs> so, well, I guess as far as the dark night rises, basically what what Professor Allen and I did for Batman Begins and for the dark night, we basically went through the movie using the Wikipedia summary. We basically just went through the movie sort of not quite point by point, but nevertheless, and I would say in pretty decent detail. And, Excruciating? Yeah. And, you know, we were basically what we wanted to do since there's really no way to know when we're going to have a chance, when, if ever, we'll have a chance to come back to this. You know, I at least wanted to make sure that we left no stone unturned. Yep. And so in relation to that, you know, I wanted to make sure that we were a little bit more organized about it. And... We can attempt doing something similar to that here, but honestly, my notes for specifically The Dark Knight Rises, they're a little bit more scattershot. Now, there's always something more to be said with any work of art, I find. But having said that, you know, it does need to be, I guess, understood that I've got specific points that I want to make, but it's not necessarily... It, it, I don't necessarily have like the, the vast backlog and catalog of notes for The Dark Knight Rises that I did for 
the the previous two. So I just want to warn you about that, Professor, before we even get that much further. So basically what, the way that I thought we could do this to finally get around to that is basically we could, you know, we can go through the, Wikipedia, uh, the Wikipedia summary. And then if you've got something with which you want to interject, feel free. And then I obviously have the same, the same idea, but you know, if a more free, like kind of free form conversation sort of grows out of that, well then obviously that's the direction that fate wants us to take. So why fight fate? So, yeah. All right. It, I guess to start with this movie came out in July of 2012 and then as now, I'm actually very surprised that Chris Nolan elected to make this movie. And the reason for that is because he sort of joked about it, you know, between The Dark Knight and The Dark Knight Rises. You know, there was some, perhaps justifiable, but there was some speculation that maybe he's not going to come back for a third one. And one of the things that he joked about was, well, how many good third movies of anything can anybody think of? And, you know, when you start thinking about The Dark Knight, and I mean like the metrics of it, you know, just for the moment, put aside the quality of the movie, whether you love it or whether you hate it. Just put all that stuff aside for a minute. The hype, the awards, the box office, the runaway box office success. There's the a very short... And the critical acclaim. Oh, yeah. Who can forget that? There's a very strong argument that at this point, you're not even tempting fate anymore by doing a third movie. You're actually just outright playing with fire, you know? And I think that there's an argument that if the the Dark Knight worldwide, if it had done only, and I'm using kind of quotation marks there, but if it had done only... 600 or 700 million dollars worldwide that would have been great money great profit that would have been definitely a home run but i think that's manageable success just on a psychological level that's a manageable level of success i think people can get their head around that you know the the talent behind the camera and in front of it they can get their heads around okay this movie is really popular i know what this means but when you start getting into a billion dollars worldwide I don't think most people can easily wrap their head around that, especially when your movie is one of the only movies at that time. This was one of the only movies that had ever done this kind of – I mean it was like at at one point I think it, this was the second most successful movie in like ever. And I, I think there comes a point when your movie or whatever it is that you've done is so successful, it kind of makes you a little bit gun shy. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I can see that. It certainly is. It's a risk having succeeded to that great level, again, by every numerical metric there is, mm-hmm. whether it's box office or Rotten Tomato scores or the Oscars. Or nostalgia, even. Right, right. I mean, that, that you know, The Dark Knight was it was a, a huge success and there is the issue of how am I going to pull that off again? Yeah. Or, and, and even not, not just the work itself, but how am I going to get that reaction again? Yeah. And I guess some of this may come back to sort of the deal he had with, uh, I guess, Warner's 
mm-hmm. to do the one for you, one for me. Right. You know, that I guess for this one, uh, Inception is the one that came in between yes. these two. And it's quite possible that he, you know, again, that was such an odd movie that without the success, he basically had a, had a you know, free reign to do whatever he wanted to. And I guess part of the deal was you do that crazy movie, which also happened to earn seven, eight hundred million worldwide. Then you, you but you have to come back and, and, and finish up. Give us one more Batman. Hmm. And, and it actually seemed like that was a decent working relationship. Indeed. You know, he got he got the prestige made, got the interstellar made you know, afterwards. So there was sort of this sense of of. One for the studio, one for himself, and it certainly appeared to be a win-win relationship, based based on the mega box office. That not just the Dark Knight movies, but that these other movies that were created during that era for Nolan, yeah, know, uh, delivered. Well, and that actually kind of speaks to something that I wanted to mention to you. Now, I'm just going to say, just full disclosure, I have not seen Inception. But I think I've seen his other films, or all of his other films, or most of them at this point. And I'm at a point in my Batman fandom where I'm just going to bite the bullet and say, the Nolan films may not be my favorite, but they are still good. And then you start thinking about things like uh, like Memento and The Prestige. And I would say, to a lesser degree, Interstellar. I mean, I thought Interstellar was okay, I didn't really think it was anything to to write home about until probably the same last 10 or 15 minutes as everybody else seems to love about that movie. But I guess apart from that, Interstellar, you know, which I thought, again, it was okay, it's, but it's not bad. But his other movies, especially his non-Batman movies, I really enjoyed, you know? And it kind of made me think, you know, there are so few filmmakers out there that can... I guess reach a certain benchmark of excellence in their own work to where you can almost blindly buy a ticket for whatever they've got coming out because they have that kind of cred with you. I mean, I, I think that there was a time, I mean, these days are long gone now, but there was a time when M night Shyamalan was on his way to that. And there came a point mainstream culture seems to want to say, the village, and I don't think I actually agree with that. I kind of enjoyed the village as, as it happens, but there came a point when it's like he just lost it. Like whatever his magic touch was, yeah, it just went bye bye. And unless Interstellar is is the is like some kind of a portent of things to come, so far no one hasn't really lost it. You know, uh, what do you think? Yeah, and I th- I think what he's managed to do, what Nolan's managed to do, is to exist in this place. And I love this phrase, though it sounds sort of like an insult, but I don't I, I don't think it has to be. To but I think what he produces is middle brow entertainment. Hmm. Movies for the masses, with some level of discussionable elements. Yeah, it's got, there's some meat on the bone there. There is some meat on the bone. This, these aren't Transformers. No. Um, which has no meat on the bones. Um, the, these aren't just 
smash them together uh, action blockbuster flicks. There's there if if you want to do some thinking, you can do some thinking based on what's in these movies and that you know obviously Inception and Memento and The Prestige. I mean these other ones you know all all fit into that category of of movies that manage to draw in the masses. And captivate their imaginations. Yes. And yes. when you think about like a movie like Memento, like I have no idea what the budget for that thing was. I'm guessing pretty low. Yeah. And on the strength of the writing and let's face it, a really good cast. Hey, you he, know, don't 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 I'm gonna say, don't discount the casting because the first job of a director is casting. I was actually going to mention that in this in this uh, when we talk about specifically about really all the whole of, of the Dark Knight trilogy. And I, I I don't think you were being dismissive, but sometimes people do that where they say, well, it was just, you know, the director, the writer, they did fine. But it was really the cast that delivered it. Well, he assembled the cast. Yeah. I mean, he gets credit for that as, as well. Yeah. And that's something actually I try to be kind of sensitive to. I mean, I'm just going to say that I'm really more of a writing guy to begin with. And so I don't really have the same eye for acting that a lot of other people do. Now, once in a while, like somebody will come along and just kind of blow you away. Yeah. yeah. Like I, just to kind of give you an example, there was uh, Stacy was watching an old episode of Supernatural. She's trying to get caught up and she's just doing this marathon sort of binge watch. And there was this one episode that, Near the beginning of it, it started off with uh, Felicia Day, uh, and she was dancing in an elevator. And there was this sort of bubblegum punk song going on in the background, I think. And I don't know what it was, but there was something about, you know, her look just as a person, you know, just her look. And not to speak of the fact that she's a ginger. And I guess the 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 total package in terms of that shot in cinema like that moment like as a cinematic moment she's there she's listening to her music she's got her earbuds in she's dancing and i could just watch that all day because i don't know why but there's something about that it just kind of grabs you like sometimes you'll see a moment in a movie that just sort of mm-hmm. sort of grabs you like the diner scene in The Godfather. I mean, I'm not trying to compare the two, but that's just another one that a lot of people look back at and say that was a great fucking scene. Well, same kind of thing here. It's like, and so sometimes you know stuff like that will grab me, but more often than not, it's really the writing or it's the idea of something or it's I don't know. And, and that's, it, it, I guess everybody has has their foibles. I'm not sure if you're subject to that, but there there you have it. But yeah, as I, I honestly, the uh, I, I guess as a film, Memento, it's just so strange to think that it was the idea, the style, the cast, the story, and it's just one of those sort of lightning in a bottle types of things. I don't know that just any filmmaker could have made Memento. It kind of needed to be Chris Nolan, and I think you could say that about a lot of his work and. One of the things that he sort of admitted to in an interview after – I think after like the main promotional type stuff had started wind, winding down for The Dark Knight Rises and he was wrapping up all of his press commitments and all that stuff. He said that basically what he did when making first The Dark Knight 
and then with The Dark Knight Rises, he basically wanted to make a film that was sort of a reflection of the way that people viewed his last movie. So whenever he made The Dark Knight, he had an eye on the way that people reacted to Batman Begins, you know? And so he basically tried to make the movie he thought people were talking about when they watched Batman Begins. He tried to make that with The Dark Knight. And then with The Dark Knight Rises, he tried to make the movie that he thought people were talking about with The Dark Knight. Now, I'm just going to ask you for your opinion. There's no wrong answer here. I guess as a before we start getting into specifics, as a whole, where do you come down with The Dark Knight Rises? Because it does need to be said that this is a little, I shouldn't say controversial, but this is a sort of love it or leave it type of film. I mean, where are you coming from in all this? When I first saw it, I thought, I mean, we talked about the hype of from, from The Dark Knight, and, and I was somewhat suckered into that. My expectations had, had risen too high, and, and I thought it was okay. But my thoughts at the time were that it was a better finish, wrap-up to the – to the series, the trilogy, then it was a good movie in and of itself. But in retrospect, having just watched it again now for the first time, probably since late 2012, I think in retrospect that it was always going to disappoint me as a standalone. Yes. With with the the Dark Knight as the as the previous movie. Right. Uh, but I think that it's better than my perception of it had been, or maybe even my perception of its reputation. Hmm. You know, com- coming back to it a little fresher, even though, you know, we've, we just saw, we did just discuss the prior two movies not that long ago in, in terms of our time, but being distant from the sort of hype of the event, uh, you know, it's, it's not as good as The Dark Knight. But I do think it's better than my sort of thoughts going into it uh, uh, had been. Right. Well, the – I guess the – sort of the baggage that I was coming into this thing with – I mean as people, we all have – well, baggage. Mm-hmm. And I was in a sort of a mood at the time where, number one, I mean these movies – Maybe I just was not in the right headspace at the time that these movies were coming out to really appreciate them as much as I could have. But a major factor in all of that, and guys, I really hope I don't offend anybody by saying this, but I just, I gotta be honest. You know, there are a lot of Batman fans that are just assholes. There are a lot of Batman fans that are just very difficult to know. And as far as I know, they're sort of unique in fandom and that if you're a fan of The Flash, then you can post a bunch of stuff on Twitter about how awesome The Flash is and it's great, you know. Or if you're a fan of Superman or Doctor Doom or Spider-Man or whoever your guy is, you know, a lot of people are content to just kind of wax fanboy about how much they love whichever character it is that really gets gets their fanboy engine going. Batman fans are a little bit unique in that it's not enough that they like Batman. 
It's that your favorite character, whomsoever that might be, is kind of a cheese dick. And he's he's lame, he's stupid, he's retarded, you know, and all this all these other things. And it's it's not enough that they like their guy, they have to tear down your guy in order to get there. Now maybe I push back just a little bit, mm-hmm. but as as an outsider, Superman fandom has done a pretty good job, at least maybe that's it's done a pretty good job of destroying itself. Oh, at least with the last couple of movies. <laughs> so and, and even new fifty two stuff. So maybe that's just civil war, like inside the fandom it gets ugly, and maybe that doesn't push out outside the fandom. But that has not been a pleasant fandom to be an outsider of and witness, much less I can imagine being on the inside of it the last few years. Well, this may seem like it's passing the buck, all right? But I, I just – I want you to hear me out, and if you if you disagree – Say so, but just hear me out, all right? I know exactly what you're talking about. I completely agree with you, and I'll even go so far as to say you're absolutely right. There's nothing you said that's in any way untrue or unfair. Now, having said that, I actually blame – I actually blame DC Comics for that. And the reason for that is just to kind of use a separate example just so I can kind of set – the table here a little bit with if you're i don't know 12 years old in 1992 and you're getting into batman you've got a starting point with batman at that point the defined starting point with batman was year one and there really wasn't a defined starting point before that time Arguably Detective Comics number 27, arguably Detective Comics number 30, I think it was. Any, either one of those. But there's otherwise, you're, you're kind of at a loss to find a place where you can say, this is where it begins. And for a long time there, Batman fans had that. They had year one, and everything that they need to know about Batman can grow from that one seed. And for a long time, Superman fans had that with John Byrne's Man of Steel. But then that changed. And then there was... Then there was Birthright. And then that changed. And then there was Secret Origin. And then that changed. And then, sort of as an accessory to all that, you had Superman Earth-1. And back in the mainstream DC universe, even that changed. Then you had the new 52, and he had a new origin there. And it's like at every step of the way, it's like DC was going so far out of its way to reboot or retcon Superman to the degree that fans had literally nothing to agree on anymore. Yeah, yeah, you're forcing your fandom to to pick sides almost. Right, and that's not a problem with Batman because year one – was always there as the sort of rallying point for unity. You know, I mean, even if they didn't necessarily like the idea of Jason Todd coming back as the Red Hood, well, you know what? We all love Batman Year One, so we don't have to beat each other up and have these silly little online wars. And, you know, I'm not saying, look, there was rancor and there was division and disagreement and all this other stuff in 
Superman fandom, like organized Superman fandom, I would say really before Birthright came along. But I, my God's honest opinion is DC took a bad situation and they made it worse. Yeah. And I don't know. Maybe you know what? It's it, it's an easy thing to criticize because I'm not the guy that had to make those editorial decisions. I'm not the guy that had to find a way to navigate these tricky political waters and maybe the only way to do it is to do birthright. You know, maybe somebody is calling in a favor and this is the only way to get out from under it. I'm not the guy that had to make those decisions. So easy for me to say, (laughs) but nevertheless, that's the hand that we've all been dealt. So hopefully that gives a little bit of balance to things. I wonder also just in terms of Batman and Superman, Mm -hmm. in terms of not just the, inner, you know, Nissan warfare, the civil wars, but the, the place, the, the viewpoint of those characters in broader culture. I wonder if Batman fans had or still have a chip on their shoulder about Batman 66, Adam West being the default for, as you call them, the normies. <laughs> when the normies think of Batman. Now, maybe these movies have changed that a little bit. But I still – for a lot of people, at least you know, through the 80s, in, into the 90s, you know, Adam West was the default of what you thought of. Pop culture, yeah. you know, broader culture when they thought of, of Batman. So maybe they sort of had that, that chip on their shoulder where Superman fans at least had the advantage of having Chris Reeve – uh, or the super friends, right? You know, as their, as what society thought they were fans of, right? If you if you had told someone you were a Batman fan, your mom, your grandma, whoever, they would have thought you were a fan of Adam West, as opposed to possibly Frank Miller or Don. Right, exactly. Or, yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. No, that look, t- that's a totally valid argument. I'm just saying that that's nevertheless the baggage that I was bringing into this. Uh, absolutely. And, <laughs> you know, I guess to to really get into this, you know, I, at least as far as the reception of this, guys, I want you to understand something. I saw Batman in 1989, Batman Returns, Batman Forever, Batman and Robin, Batman Begins – and the Dark Knight. I saw all of those on opening day, or in the case of Batman Begins and the Dark Knight, I saw those at midnight. Mm-hmm. And it was something that I took a lot of pride in. You know, when Batman's there, I'm there. He's my guy. And, you know, he and I were on this weird, strange, lifelong journey together. And we're always going to be there. It'll be Magnus and Batman, Batman and Magnus. That's how it's always going to be. And, Guys, I didn't. Not for this. It was a good couple of weeks, at least, before I saw The Dark Knight Rises, just because it it, 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 it sort of came down to enthusiasm after a while, you know? I mean, anyway, I, I'm not trying to beat this to death, but I, when I say what I have to say about this movie, I want to put it into some kind of context that, guys, it didn't have to be this way. The stuff that you're about to hear me say about this film, it could have gone totally the other way. And in fact, that's what I was expecting. I wasn't expecting to have this much to say about the movie. So anyway, now before we finally get into uh, the summer, do you have any, any anything else you want to bring in in terms of intros or, or preliminaries, disclaimers, anything? <laughs> no, that's good. All right. 
I guess it would help if I bring up the right page. Okay, here we go. So, <clears throat> eight years after the death of District Attorney Harvey Dent, the Dent Act grants the Gotham City Police Department powers which have nearly eradicated organized crime in Gotham City. Police Commissioner James Gordon feels increasingly guilty for covering up the crimes committed by Dent, who was turned into a murderer by the Joker. He even writes a resignation speech confessing the truth, but ultimately decides not to use it, which kind of calls into question a little bit of how much he really feels guilty here. But I guess to kind of put a uh, put a pin on this, as far as, I guess, Commissioner Gordon uh, struggling with a little bit of a guilt complex in terms of the cover-up that he helped initiate in The Dark Knight. Uh, do you buy that? I mean, do you buy the idea that a guy who is this desperate to make sure that organized crime goes down is going to have uh, moral problems with it later on down the line? I could see that it's something that would gnaw at him after a while. The fact that this is not his reaction one year later, two years later, three years later, but eight years later, maybe. You know, there's a some pricks to his conscience or wondering about the Patriot, uh, the Dent Act itself, <laughs> and <laughs> and and the techniques uh, that are being used. Um, you know, and, and so I, I could see maybe in a, in a reflective moment, with some time, water under the bridge, and all that, that maybe, uh, yeah, yeah, maybe some some regret or some. Just that you've been keeping this secret long enough, right? That's at some point maybe that uh, desire to wipe the slate clean. Well, this is – honestly, this is one of the more relatable moral complications that Nolan plays with in the movie and that Gotham City before Batman, it was – it was a, a cesspool. This place was a pit. You know, it was this bottomless black hole of of rot and corruption. And so the way to win, and Gordon, it took some time, but he eventually realized that the only real way to win was to fight fire with fire. By any standard, Batman is a criminal. You know, so Gordon is kind of colluding with a criminal just by showing up. And so it's to me, it's one less step that you'd have to take on a psychological level to be in a in a in a position mentally where at the end of the dark night you could say, yeah, OK, fine, I'll hang all of these murders that I know for a fact you didn't commit. I'll hang them on you anyway. Because ultimately what we're doing here is serving a greater good. And it's that was a decision that when I really started thinking about it with the Dark Knight, I kind of bought. I could buy that Batman would volunteer himself as a martyr. I could buy that Gordon would try talking him out of it, but ultimately he would he would roll with it. You know, if if, if the stakes truly were as high as we're led to believe they were at the end of the dark night. Yeah, I think, I think he would probably do that. And I think one of the defining, <clears throat> one of the defining elements of 
or the defining themes of the Dark Knight is that even if power or technology or what have you, even if that's not necessarily abused, it's not necessarily good for you that you did it. It's not necessarily good for society that you did it. And so even though you could argue no harm was ever done, I think there's a lot of disco potential in saying that this was not good. This was not healthy for you to do this. And I don't want to drag anybody's personal life into this. And if you want me to edit this next part out, I will. But I know where you're coming from on a religious basis. And I think you know where I'm coming from on a religious basis. And there's a quote from, wouldn't you know, I want to say it's either first or second Corinthians. I forget which. It's one of those. I'm pretty sure. But basically, St. Paul says to words to the effect of, unto me, all things are lawful, but not all things are beneficial. Mm -hmm. Unto me, all things are lawful, but not all things are expedient. You can do anything, but not everything is good for you. You know, you can be forgiven for anything, but not everything is a worthwhile experience. There are certain things you're better off not experiencing, you know? Mm -hmm. And I would say that a conspiracy that basically completely dismantles the the mafia, even if the outcome of that, it has a, let's face it, a net positive effect right. on society, you still, you compromised, you know, every sense of integrity and honesty. I mean, you know, uh, this is obstruction of justice by any standard. This is deceit, dishonesty. I'm blam- I- I'm rambling here. It, 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 I mean, you, that's you why. It. I mean, first of all, that's why moral quandaries are moral quandaries, because they're hard. <laughs> um, but one thing, my, I, I, I had one sort of snarky comment about this scene at first. Then the more I thought about it, even just speaking with you about it here, it comes more. I can see it more uh, realistic, and that's my. You know, very first note on seeing this scene is it's been eight years and they have the same mayor and the same police commissioner. Are there no term limits in Gotham City? (laughs) And then – but then the more I thought about it, these guys have ostensibly done a great job cleaning up the city. Why wouldn't they be reelected? No, that makes – You know, and and that's sort of building into what – to to what you're saying. If they've done the work, if the city – is governable again if the corruption's been rooted out. If they've made progress in those areas, then maybe you keep the same team in place. Well, to a point anyway, but we'll come back to that in uh... – I mean the, the, the mayor does make the point about it, the commissioner being a wartime commissioner, maybe not a peacetime commissioner. Right. You know, so you sort of that, – that reference to the godfather. Yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna bring that up. If I had a consigliere, a wartime consigliere, exactly. you know. But, but, but what the, uh, what the, uh, you know, what the mayor is saying is, things have changed. This is a brighter day in Gotham. We don't need those same techniques anymore, you know. And and that's an optimistic statement. And you can say that these guys continually being reelected is a positive, optimistic sign for the city. 
Well, you know, people at the time that this movie came out, people actually mentioned that same thing about Mayor Guyliner. And <laughs> the my response to that was how long was Bloomberg mayor of New York? Right. I mean, no one seemed to really mind that. I think he served like three terms or something like that. And I think he had to like modify like some law or some constant. Yeah, because if I remember, Giuliani was up for re-election the year after 9-11 and did not run for a third term because it was sort of – I don't know if it was – he did not make that extra step. Right. Uh, and then and then Bloomberg did. Well, and the – you know, it, it's of all things. I mean, or, or here's one. I mean, now we're talking about a different elected office, but you know, w- Rick Perry was the governor of Texas for, let me think, like from 2001 until 2014 or 2015. Yeah, I think it was actually 2014. Now, I'm not saying that I'm not commenting either way on Rick Perry or his policies. I'm just saying that it is possible. For someone to, you know, even as governor, you know, when you have a defined state constitution that outlines what the contours of this office are, he basically finished off what was at the time Governor George W. Bush's term. Then he was elected. Then he was reelected. And so that works out to, well, what it worked out to. And so it's it's possible to do. I mean, it's just – I'm not trying to beat this thing to death, other than, but I do want to kind of make the point that, you know, of all things people could possibly take exception to in this movie. I mean, like, this is what they chose. Like, really? It was, it was the first thing I noticed, I did, mm-hmm. but I meant it more as a joke. Right. So uh, to get back into it, uh, summary continues. Bruce Wayne has become a recluse, broken by the death of his childhood sweet uh, sweetheart, almost said sweet tart, childhood sweetheart Rachel Dawes and has retired – as the vigilante Batman after taking the blame for dense crimes as well as dense death. And this is, again, this is a kind of a big matzo ball here. So, um, ah, hell with it. I, I, where, why don't you go ahead and take the lead on this one? You know, this idea of, of basically Bruce Wayne calling it a day, at least for some time as Batman, uh, where, you know, where are you coming from on that? Well, it comes back to, what you think Batman's mission is. And in the comic books, that is by definition a serialized medium, mm-hmm. whether the intent was the daily newspaper strip or the monthly comic book. Those stories have to go on forever. So giving Batman giving himself, Bruce giving himself, the impossible mission of never letting any child suffer the way I've suffered. Yes. To make sure this will never happen again, period, forever and ever, amen, is perfect for a comic book. Because we need, because, you know, it's possible. You invent a character like Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, they could publish for 75 consecutive years. It's possible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you need a, you need a story engine. That does not give up the ghost. And, but in a movie, a movie is a, a different thing. Yes. Either one self-contained unit or three self-contained, you know, a self-contained unit of three, three movies here. And this was teased at in the earlier movies. Yes. I, I believe both. Um, 
mentioned the idea of a we talked about time limits or term limits a term limit as as batman right for emotional reasons physical reasons or of getting you know his his goal was to get the city to where it needed to be and again as we beat to death <laughs> in the last 10 minutes the city seems to be in pretty good shape right and the fact that uh, We've gone from wartime to peacetime and dealing with criminals. You know, bat, the Batman's work, his mission, seemed to have been accomplished. So I don't, I don't have a problem with it. Well, I mean, we let, we let policemen retire. We let firefighters retire. We let EMTs retire. We let, uh, we let uh, our, our armed, armed services personnel retire. Really, in those cases – Comparatively, after comparatively short careers, right, tw- twenty-five years maybe or something, because of the nature of the of that work. And if we consider, if we put our heroes in that category, then a retirement after a relatively comparatively short working life doesn't seem out of bounds. No, I don't. And think- and, and to some extent. Again, as we said, from the from the beginning, to some extent, that's the story, or that certainly is compatible with the story that had been started in the prior movies. Agreed. And there's a lot to be said there for for um, I guess thematic fulfillment, and that's an issue I'm going to be coming back to before too long. But the I guess to start with, I was a little bit reluctant. To accept this idea that Batman's been out of action for eight years, just and guys, this was just my inner fanboy saying, "No, damn it, no, he he wouldn't give up." Uh, uh, no, it, it, that was just really me throwing a little bit of a tantrum. The simple fact of the matter is that I don't know why, but for some reason, I've always sort of connected with the sort this I guess this kind of rough idea or archetype or what have you of a hero an especially great one being broken, just beaten down by life to such a degree that he just dives into a hole and pulls it in after him. I, If I had to draw a straight line in terms of my own life experiences and why is it that I would feel that way, I tend to think back to this period when, you know, I pretty much didn't really leave home for like, something like two years or something like that, you know? And, you know, just, I don't want to turn this into like a big pity party or anything, but basically just some stuff had happened. And it really took a long time for me to get my head around it, you know, and be okay again, you know? And I don't want to, I don't want it to sound like something so dramatic as I was going through some kind of big depression or something. I have no idea. I, I just know that for some reason, you lose this ability to relate to other people on even simple things, you know, and you lose your ability to kind of even cope with simple things. And what you can do is stay home and just hide, you know? And when I, when I kind of took off the, the fanboy outrage goggles and I just started thinking about, you know, things that, that I've experienced just in my personal life. 
I know exactly where Bruce is coming from on this. And it was one of those things that maybe it's just because I've always kind of liked that as a storytelling device, sort of the Obi-Wan Kenobi uh, type. Or maybe it's just because something kind of similar drove me to a sort of similar decision and kind of similar life circumstances. I didn't have to when I when I really gave this this aspect of the movie fair consideration. The only way I could really deny it at that point is to be a complete hypocrite, you know, (laughs) and that's that's maybe the best way I can think to say it. Well, I won't look at it at it personally like that, but again, maybe taking a big picture, but staying in this uh, depressing (laughs) area that you've taken us down. Sorry. uh, No, no. you know, there there are reasons why members of the armed forces and police officers have high suicide rates. The nature of those positions, nature of those jobs, much, much even even discounting the the, the physical uh, aspects of that. But but then again, if you want to throw in PTSD and and various other aspects of those types of professions, which are probably the closest things that we could think of to superheroes. Right. Superheroes are always somewhere in between police and militaries, I think, sort of where they where they reside. And there are emotional and physical tolls that those positions extract on the human. And I think not unreasonable to think that a masked vigilante crime fighter would uh, deal with the work similarly, that it would have similar effects on them. And we see the physical effects. You know, that's a, a point that, uh, that is made strongly in the, in the movie are the physical ramifications. And I think to some extent what you're getting at are the emotional ramifications of this life. Right. Well, it's been my experience that it's really hard. It's not hard to be strong. It's hard to be strong for a really Mm. long time. And most people are strong right up until the moment that they don't have to be strong anymore. And then they fall to pieces, you know? So I guess what I'm driving at here is that if this is a decision, if this is a loss that's so intense and so powerful in its ramifications that it drives this man underground, then, you know, there's an argument there that it would have been so devastating to him personally, he would have hung up the cape in the dark night. And I don't think I agree with that as a uh, as a criticism because of the fact that if nothing else, vengeance is fueling him through the last portion of the dark night. But if nothing else, I mean, there is at this point a bigger, more malevolent threat going on in the city now in the form of the Joker. They're bigger than the fact that your girlfriend died. Batman was strong right up until the moment that he didn't have to be strong anymore. And then he went to pieces. And again, I find that very believable just because of the fact that I've seen it. I've seen people not 
save the city from a terrorist and clown makeup. <laughs> but I've seen people go through kind of similar things with similar stakes. And then right when they it, it's finally over, then they have post-traumatic stress disorder or then they have uh, whatever their depression issues are or then they, you know, fucking have a nervous breakdown, whatever their thing is, you know, and I've seen it. To a degree, I've even experienced it. I find this extremely easy to believe, and it's it it's tricky to use words like believable or realistic, or even you know grounded, mm-hmm. in terms of of these fantastical movies. And I think, but I think, what can be done within this type of setting to inject realism, believability, etc. It are things like this, the emotional, psychological, those aspects that we've seen. We haven't seen people dressed in Kevlar riding the – they're flying the bat <laughs> through through the city, as you said, blowing away uh, uh, you know, uh, face-painted uh, master uh, serial killers. But, <laughs> but we know people have gone through stress and loss and physical – damage and we know what it does to them so if you can keep and i think these movies tend to do it pretty well if you can keep that stuff realistic if you or or believable i think you're you're heading down the right path agreed well to continue with the uh with the synopsis here cat burglar selena kyle obtains I'm going to take that over again. Cat, uh, cat burglar, Selena Kyle, obtains Wayne's fingerprints from his home and kidnaps Congressman uh, Byron Gilly. She sells the fingerprints to Philip Striver, an assistant to Wayne's business rival, John Daggett. In return, she requests her, her payment, which is to say a clean slate that can wipe all traces of a person and in including that person's criminal background, wipe all traces of a person from the internet. Striver double-crosses Catwoman, but she uses Gilly's phone to alert the police as to their location. Gordon and the police arrive to find the congressman and then pursue Striver's men into the sewers while Selena flees. The police attempt to follow uh, follow Striver's men into the sewers, but the men that enter the sewers are killed and Gordon is captured while the rest of the police are assailed by sniper fire. The assailants drag Gordon to Bane, which is to say a masked mercenary, who has <clears throat> who has him searched, meaning has Gordon searched, and finds his resignation speech. I'm going to put a little pin in this here. So, a lot of stuff going on there. Specifically, I guess first of all, the introduction of selena kyle as a character but also anne hathaway playing selena kyle so maybe that's where we should start what are your thoughts uh with that i I thought the introduction was very strong uh both their interaction uh as she is wearing his mother's pearls and uh, out of the uncrackable safe yes which she points out well no one told me it was uncrackable and what i liked about that i went back just to, to review it. Uh, we all did. <laughs> and in the previous scenes, 
we she is introduced from behind, mm-hmm. and we see her bare neck. Yep. And then when he finds her, uh, she is wearing the necklace. So, uh, checkpoint for the continuity nerds. Uh, Very well done. I agree. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> the I guess the thing that I kind of like about that is that Catwoman sort of. She was never really introduced in the original Batman comics. She was never really introduced. It was more that it was more like she kind of emerged. She started off as just a sort of generic uh, jewel thief, and then right. it's like the process it was refined and refined, and, and it's like it took Bob Kane. And, <clears throat> excuse me. It took Bob Kane and Jerry Robinson. They knew they had something here. But they needed time to sort of, I guess, crack the code mm-hmm. a little bit. And when you think about it, I mean, it is kind of a bold idea to kind of to to introduce a female character who is a thief, who has a secret identity of her own, and wears a costume. That may seem like common sense today, but back in 1940, not necessarily. And so it took them a while to kind of figure out how are we going to do this? And that is, it's not exactly perfectly replicated the way it was in those original comics. Cause as much as anything, that's, there's a lot of trial and error that's going on there, but you do get the idea that Selena is escalating her game as circumstances require her to, in order to get the job done. And, I honestly, guys, I, I have to say one of the many things that I had about this movie, Sight Unseen, was actually the fact that Anne Hathaway is in it. Because what I kind of figured, rightly or wrongly, what I kind of figured is that because of the fact that Anne Hathaway is going to play Selena Kyle in The Dark Knight Rises, the odds of her playing Lois Lane in this new man, uh, this new Superman movie that we kept hearing was in the pipeline, the odds of her being available or at least willing to play Lois Lane. Now that just doesn't seem as likely anymore, you know, to go from one comic book movie to another comic book. movie, I I didn't see how, how it was possible. And so I was kind of resentful of it that way, but having actually seen the movie now, I, I do think I owe everybody listening to this, the honesty of saying first, that's what I originally thought. And then second, you know, she doesn't have like a major role in this movie, at least as far as screen time is concerned, but she really is effective in her role. And it, it would just seem disingenuous of me to, to not say so. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So moving right along, we've got, we actually this I noticed this summary doesn't actually include the real introduction to Bane, so we're just gonna use this encounter in the sewer as our first meeting with Bane. <laughs> so I guess to begin with one of the things, one of the many things that I had as far as baggage is concerned with this movie, there's a lot of baggage here, guys, is that when Chris Nolan made Batman Begins, he used Carmine Falcone, he used 
Jonathan Crane the Scarecrow. He used Ra's al Ghul. Al -Ghul. <laughs> I'm going to get it right one of these days. And he, what I'm saying is that for Batman Begins, Nolan adapted completely... Well, I don't mean original supervillains, but he used villains that were foreign to live action up to that point. Right. With The Dark Knight, there was Sal Moroni, but obviously that's the Joker's movie. Let's just cut the shit. You know? And then there was Two-Face. And all three of those characters, to varying degrees, had popped up in the previous franchise. In fact, Moroni and Two-Face had popped up in Batman Forever. And so there's not as much originality to that. And then, here in The Dark Knight Rises, Catwoman had been done before. Bane had been done before. And the thing about it that just kind of bothered me in all this, it's like there came a point when it... it I don't know if this is actually what happened behind the scenes, but it's like Nolan just didn't want to adapt new characters anymore. But that kind of fell apart when I actually started watching the movie. And what I realized is that this character is called Bane, but this character is not actually Bane. If you think of this character as Bane, I don't really think it works all that well in terms of what Bane has always been in the comics. But if you think of this character as Ubu, <laughs> it actually right, works right. really, really well. And for whatever reason, marquee appeal, I suppose, they don't they, they don't call this character Ubu. They call him Bane. But he says the stuff I could picture Ubu saying. You know, he does things for the reasons I could picture Ubu doing them, you know? And, you know, whatever. It's not worth having, like I say, the, the point of this is not to have a fanboy temper tantrum. It's just basically to say the truth. And that's the truth as I see it. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think it's Bane specifically because because of the one scene later you know they're they're using bane because of he breaks the back later you know right. you can use that line and also ubu would be a spoiler for yeah. the turn in the movie yeah okay no that's a good point See, fanboy but, goggles right there. But yes, but yes, what you, what you say certainly makes sense. Well, there is another there is another issue here related to Bane that we it's sort of the the pink elephant in the room. The voice. I got used to it pretty quickly. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. Um it's it's easy to mock, but then again so is so it was Batman's voice in these movies, yeah. easy to mock. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, they give enough of a backstory of why he has to wear what he wears and, and the effect it might have muffling the voice. Reasonable. And the fact that it's a bit of – that that it's, you know, not Amer a non-American accent coming through that makes sense in the backstory as well. Um, so – that that was something that I remembered not liking, and maybe that was simply by osmosis over the intervening three or four years. I had adopted that attitude mm -hmm. that it's easy to make fun of, easy to mock. But I think in the context of the movie, it worked really well. 
well, I, 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 I had much less of a problem with it and got used to it quickly, you know, saw that it fit within the context of the movie and, and then went with it. Right. Well, it does need to be said that Tom Hardy is something like five, eight, five, nine, something like that. And at the time that he shot this movie, he weighed 190 pounds. <laughs> and when you think about it, I guess he's he's just not really the physical specimen that most people think of when they envision Bane. And so I do find it kind of telling that it's pretty rare that Chris Nolan ever put Bane alongside anything that would give you a sense of scale. Right. Uh, he usually chose camera angles that would be more flattering or perhaps more imposing. Right. And honestly, this I don't mean this as a slam. I'm just saying it again because it's true. My clearest memory of Tom Hardy prior to The Dark Knight Rises, I knew him from Star Trek Nemesis. And I thought, oh, my God, they cast shins on as Bane? Like, wow, that's... <laughs> I mean, that's an interesting choice. Right. I'll, I'll be honest with you, you know? And I thought, well, I mean, what are they going to do? Are they going to make make him sound like a like a crusty English butler or something? Well, here we are. So well, I'm the, I'm, I'm, I, I am also a person who every time a you know comic book is about to be adapted mm -hmm. and every former and current pro wrestler is proposed for the role by fans, I sort of roll my eyes. I mean, it's worked a few times, but um, you, if you get the right actor, you can, as you said, you can you can film around the look a little bit. Right. You know, you 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 don't have to start with the visual. If you get that, great. I think well, it worked. It worked in Guardians of the Galaxy. Obviously, um, obviously, The Rock is a legitimate. Box, box office draw and pretty good actor. Yeah, not but, necessarily but, the norm. But. Yeah, but I don't need every one of my comic book villains to have come from the squared circle. Well, look, I mean, the thing is, if 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 Chris Nolan or any filmmaker, for that matter, had, I guess, turned to the WWE for casting ideas... I sincerely would not think less of him because of the fact that, you know, this is a character that he's going to be masked. And I don't know how much of his mouth movement you're really going to see. And you can cast a different voice actor. He doesn't have to talk like the Hulk right. brother. Right. With that, that's that's true. They they could have done actually a, a separate voice and done it fully. You know, Darth Vader. Right. ADR hadn't thought about that. And. You know, I wouldn't – I honestly, I would not have thought less of Nolan for doing it that way. And there's obviously a depth of performance that Nolan wanted Bane to have, and he believed that a more conventional type of film actor would be better for the role. And I don't know. I mean, I think the, the final product, it doesn't suffer necessarily for – for it being Tom Hardy under the mask. You know, now there are other things that may have suffered. One of which is that Tom Hardy is just one of those guys who just doesn't really have very much of a, of a filter. Uh, it does need to be said that this is a guy that maybe doesn't know when to keep his mouth shut. 
And a good example of that actually came when he compared, I shit you not, he compared making The Dark Knight Rises to basically going to Starbucks. And that this isn't really a movie as such. It's it's a Mick movie. You know, you go to the drive-thru, you order what you, you order your burger, whatever it is, and you come through on the other side, and hey, there's your Mick movie, Haas. And he basically compared it to working at Starbucks, where this isn't really like real filmmaking. And number one, I just gotta say, shut the fuck up. Yeah. All right. Honestly, you know, I mean. This is going to be a movie. It's going to have. It's a big opportunity for you. You're working with a, an Oscar-winning film director. You're surrounded by Oscar-winning actors, and you know, dude, there are a lot of people out there who would love to be in a movie that that's going to have the kind of exposure that this is going to have. So why don't you have? Oh, I don't know. Anyway, it's just he doesn't necessarily know when to keep his mouth shut. And when you hear stories about of all people, Shia LaBeouf beating the crap out of Tom Hardy on set, I will repeat that Shia LaBeouf beating the crap out of Tom Hardy on a film set. It's kind of easy to believe when you remember stories about him comparing, making this movie to going to Starbucks, you know? So anyway, you ready to get back into the summary here? Let's do it. All right. Gordon escapes Bane's clutches. Gordon escapes and is found by John Blake, a patrol officer who also has not been introduced in the synopsis prior to this moment. Gordon promotes Blake to detective for God knows what reason, with Blake reporting to, uh, directly to him. Bane and multiple accomplices attack the Gotham Stock Exchange using Bruce Wayne's fingerprints in a transaction that ultimately leaves Wayne bankrupt. Wayne's butler, Alfred, wow, we really are moving. (laughs) This thing is just moving all over the place here. Well, whatever. So I'm just, I'm just going to dive into it. Wayne's butler, Alfred Pennyworth reveals that Rachel had intended to marry Harvey Dent before she died. And Alfred then resigns in an attempt to convince Bruce to move on from being Batman. So there's a lot of, a, a lot of stuff that's going on here. Um, Basically, what the synopsis is sort of glossing over is John Blake paying a visit to stately Wayne Manor and basically threatening to get a search or not a search order, sorry, a search warrant or some kind of warrant in the murder of Harvey Dent in order to basically barge his way into a personal meeting with Bruce Wayne, where number one, he gives a little bit of his backstory, but number two, he says that he knows that Bruce Wayne is, was, and always has been Batman. I'm going to let you take the lead on that one. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I like that he's a fan, a <laughs> fan of Batman. I like that he's a believer in Batman. They did not give us enough of how he figured it out. I mean, it's not that hard to figure it out. Uh, 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 the the, uh, 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 the precise tech. rationale hey, that he mentioned, yes, though. Yes. I mean, a Wayne Tech accountant figured it out last movie. I mean, people have figured it out. People will figure it out. Uh, yes, but the, the precise way in which he, he figures it out, that they had an orphaned orphan 
mind meld. Yeah. Is yeah. Let let's move past that park and get back to the good part of the movie. That's sort of my when when I'm in that scene, it's like come on, move on, move on. Let's go, let's go, let's go. Well, the part of me that I don't mind the idea that a sharp police officer would figure it out. Nor do I. Actually. I mean, I mean that's sort of one of the jokes is how can. How can Commissioner Gordon be the best police officer in Gotham if he's never figured that out, right? <laughs> you know, I mean, I, that's an easy go-to joke, right? But I, I like the idea that uh, that here we have a a bright, on-the-ball officer slash detective who is who has figured it out. Well, these comics and these characters meant everything to me when I was a kid and a, and there was one story that really resonated with me which is weird because as I reread this story as an adult it's really not all that good but a story that really meant a lot to me when I was a kid was A Lonely Place of Dying and one of the scenes that everybody remembers about A Lonely Place of Dying involved Tim Drake basically barging into stately Wayne Manor and Somewhat having it out with Dick Grayson saying, hey, I know that you are Nightwing. I know that you used to be Robin. And I know that Bruce Wayne is Batman. And I also know that and, and there's some other story stuff that comes out of all of that. But this scene isn't really as, as it's not as obnoxious as Tim was in that moment from A Lonely Place of Dying. But. That's sort of what that moment reminds me of. And because of that, it's definitely got that Burt Ward, Adam West logic that doesn't even seem logical to it when you actually start listening. But it's like I roll with it anyway because it reminds me of something that honestly meant everything to me when I was a kid. And so it's amazing what you're willing to tolerate, I guess. As to the kind of good stuff, one of the things that we that this synopsis just doesn't seem interested in talking about too much is Batman. Specifically, <laughs> Batman intercepts the, uh, the uh, Bane and uh, his minions after they make their escape from Gotham Stock Exchange. Now, it does need to be said that this is a Bruce a, a this is Bruce Wayne, and this is Batman. That's totally raw at this point. This is a guy who's out of shape. He's basically been sitting on his butt for the last eight years. He's nowhere near on top of his game. Now, that's still apparently good enough to easily overcome League of Shadow. Like, And I mean like card-carrying members of the League of Shadows, ninjas and stuff. He's still good enough. Even eight years of rust having built up, he's still good enough to keep up with them, but it's nevertheless, this is not a Batman who's necessarily on top of his game. And we do get this sort of dark Knight returns moment where the elder police officer says that, Hey, you are in for a show tonight, son. And I got to tell you the, the part of me that grew up reading the dark Knight returns, even now just, I, I can't help it. 
I just go total fanboy on that moment. Yeah, they said the line. It's so cool. I love this. <laughs> and it's this really, I think, really neat, really well done sort of action sequence where we're like 40 some minutes into the movie at this point. We're finally getting some Batman on screen. And it's in the form of a chase. And we don't completely know what's at stake here. We just know that it involves the the stock exchange and it's 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 Bane and now the entire friggin' Gotham City police force they're descending upon Batman and holy shit, he makes his escape. It's just it's a really neat little moment in the movie. I dig it. And um I give you the mic. I like the scene and I'm glad we get some like you said, some uh Batman action here. My Concern that I have with this part of the movie, I have to jump back just a little bit and to an earlier scene or two and also reference uh, some things we said. I think it was in Batman Begins. Yes. About how well or how believable the parts of the movie that dealt with business and dealt with <laughs> Wayne Tech as the company – uh, not technically correct, but for a movie, pretty good and worked within the confines well enough. Right. You know, in the, in the same way that CSI plays a fast and loose with recognizable forensic science. Right. This part about the stock market and the fortune and the company, there's some threads in there if you pull at them, don't hold together. Um, well enough and there again it's probably a shortcut way you 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 could come up with ways for uh, uh, Bruce to lose all his money um, but not that way right but you know in in terms of we only want to use three minutes of screen time to to, to do this then it worked and and it was in the midst of an action scene, in the midst of taking over the stock exchange building, which had much less, much more lax security than I would have expected. Basically, one person on a with a walkie-talkie saying, "Sir, you can't come in here." That seemed to be the extent of the the stock exchange security team. <laughs> Minor technicalities. Great scenes. It gets the character uh, to the point where the, that the movie needs the character to be in, and it does it in probably as quick a way as they could have to you know skim over that that stuff. Right. Well, the you know things like that. I kind of accepted when I was watching The Dark Knight that if I pick apart every single plot hole that this movie has going for it or leaps in logic, flaws in logic, you know, I could be here all night, you know, and the same really holds true for The Dark Knight Rises. And so what I've decided is that, you know, we can note these things, but I'm, I mean, and I don't know about you, I can't really riot in the streets over this because I don't want to no, go to jail, no. <laughs> but um. Yeah, I'm kind of right there with you. You know, I mean, but those I'm, are those are as as they say minor technicalities. I admit that as well. Right, but it's just it. I, I think it's worth mentioning, nevertheless, just because you know, especially as the trilogy moves on, 
it makes greater and greater overtures toward being highfalutin, fancy schmancy cinema. Well, these are the terms that highfalutin, fancy schmancy cinema <laughs> kind of have to meet. So you're not out of line. And, the, you know, I mean, when people say that it, look, it may not be technically correct, but it is dramatically correct, is persuasive in the Mick movies, but less so in this, in this type of format. So I don't think you're out of line here. But we do get a moment here where some of the buried secrets of the past we discover, they're not just gnawing away at Gordon. They're actually gnawing away at Alfred, too, because he reveals that... Rachel was planning to choose Harvey over Bruce before she died. And Alfred never said so because sometimes I want to be careful how I say this. Sometimes it's okay to let people believe the things that they want to believe. You know, you're not necessarily helping them by hitting them with the ugly truth, you know? And that's a small-scale version, a personal version of what we had at the beginning of the movie on a larger scale, this idea of keeping a secret because the results have been positive, that there's almost more harm than good that can come with telling the truth about Harvey or about Rachel. Agreed. And I mean I almost feel like there's not really a whole lot to put on the other side of that. I think from a, from, I guess, an engineering standpoint, what you need to do in a movie like this is figure out how can we isolate Bruce Wayne? Okay, well, Gordon's in the hospital, so Batman doesn't have access to Gordon. He's basically working somewhat in a vacuum, and Gordon can't protect him. Alfred is basically kicked out of the manor in some ways depending on how you look at it. And so now Bruce is losing out on his one real father figure. Now Bruce has just lost his entire fortune. Every step of the way, Bruce is being more and more and more isolated as the narrative unfolds. And then eventually he's just taking, he, he's taken away right. altogether. And there are elegant ways of doing that. And there are maybe some not so elegant ways of doing that. And honestly, I think the logic here, it basically holds up. You know, I could see a father figure saying that, you know what, this is one of those times when ignorance truly is bliss. I'm just going to let this go. Mm-hmm. But there could come a point when, you know what, maybe it's time to revisit that decision. Mm-hmm. And if it comes out that Alfred lied, even if by even if it's by omission, he lied about something of that kind of magnitude. It's not okay. It'll never be okay. That's always going to be kind of a huge fucking deal. So, and and one of the reasons for me that Bane works in this movie mm-hmm. is that no, he's not breaking all of the villains out to wear Batman down so he can come break him. But we do have a Batman slash Bruce who is worn down, who is beaten down physically and, as we've said, multiple times, emotionally, mentally, psychologically. You know, um, So he is getting 
he is getting softened up. Right. He is getting beaten up, you know, pretty well. So it's not it's not carbon copy of the Bane story from the comics, but it's it is it is similar. Agreed. And that that plays for me all around. So Moving right along, Wayne Enterprises is losing profits after Wayne discontinued his fusion reactor project, which again, the synopsis maybe could have mentioned a little bit sooner, but hey, woulda, shoulda, coulda. When he learned that the that the core of the reactor could be weaponized, fearing that Daggett, which is to say Bane's employer, would gain access to the reactor, Wayne asks Wayne Enterprises board member, Miranda Tate, who also should have been mentioned in the synopsis sooner, to take over his company. Kyle agrees. God, we're just jumping all over the place here. Kyle agrees to take uh, Bane. Sorry, Batman to Bane. Kyle agrees to take Batman to Bane, but instead leads him into Bane's trap. Bane reveals that he intends to fulfill uh, Roz, Roz Al Ghul's uh, agenda to destroy Gotham City with the League of Shadows remnant. He engages Batman and then delivers a crippling blow to his back before taking him. Actually, you know what? We're going to put the pen in right there. So this is kind of the, I guess, the nightfall moment of the story here. One of the things that I got to tell you I like about this fight is the fact that it doesn't begin with Batman versus Bane. It begins with Selina and, oh, fuck it. I'm just going to call her Catwoman. It begins with Catwoman and with Batman taking on League of Shadow uh, operatives in the underground. And it is a little glimpse into basically how good Batman really is, you know. And even though he's out of practice, this guy, yes, he's been ridiculously well trained, but he's also just a, a superior physical specimen to begin with. He can do this. And that's one of the reasons why it plays all the harder or all the better, perhaps, when Batman has his face off with Bane. And customarily, what we've seen in these movies is that when Batman punches somebody in the face, they hit the floor. And that's not what happens with the Bane fight. Batman gives Bane his absolute best fight, but his martial arts moves are not enough. His his weapons his tactics are not enough his his gadgets are not enough batman walked into this fight completely fucking outmatched by bane there's literally nothing that batman in this moment is capable at throwing at bane that's not a lethal weapon that is going to so much as make a dent and it's one of those moments in the movie that kind of invites comparison to what's come before like what would batman as we saw him at the tail end of Batman Begins, how would Batman at that time have handled Bane as we see him here? And I think it's reasonable to assume, you know, he probably would have taken his shots. He might need a Band-Aid, to say the very least, but he'd win the fight. That isn't what happens here. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I think is that just kind of grabbed uh, sort of grabs me about this fight scene is the fact that when the fight starts, you know what the league of shadows operatives are seeing is somebody attack their boss 
and they don't lift a finger to help him. That's how seriously they don't take Batman at this point. Mm. So anyway, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I like that. Uh, I like the scene. I like the fight. Um, the sense of betrayal of Catwoman le- leading him in in into the trap. And like we said, he's he is he is he is entering the fight unprepared, physically, emotionally, etc. Uh, unprepared from the pounding that he's gone <laughs> undergone in this movie so far, Again, not just uh, not just physical. And Bane also knows who he is. Yes, obviously, uh, we sort of figure that out from the stock market. Uh, but here he he, uh, I guess no, maybe that that may have been. I guess that could have just been going after Bruce Wayne specifically. But here he acknowledges that uh, that he knows uh, that he also knows who uh, who Wayne is. Doesn't like, say how, but it just nope, says he knows. No, nope. I like which makes it more believable <laughs> to some extent. Yeah. You know, with the resources of of the league and 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 all of that. Um, um, I did like uh, earlier when uh, again they sort of. Skipped over some of the stuff with, uh, I guess we can say spoilers, with oh, with uh, with Miranda Tate with Tate. Mm-hmm. When uh, I like the scene where they sneak back into Wayne Manor, which I guess is being repossessed that quickly. But yeah. okay, well, I mean, I, I guess if uh, I just where they would have made the payments, or maybe it's been sold to pay off something. I think is what they said. They got sold quickly to pay off. To make him liquid again or something, right. but they, uh, uh, I, 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 kind of like them sneaking into Wayne Manor, and uh, and and comparing scars, <laughs> uh, physical as well as others, I think as well. Well, of all people, you got to figure Batman's got some good scars, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's a good that 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 is a good moment. You know, it's only when. The fight ends with Bane slamming Batman's knee across his back. Mm-hmm. It was only really in that moment that I realized, you know what? This is not the conclusion of the fight that Batman wanted. What I think he would have wanted was winning the fight and taking Bane down. Or he would have been fine if Bane had beaten him to death and just killed him right there. Mm-hmm. What he was not prepared for was a physical defeat and then a debilitating but survivable injury. That was not in the cards. And one of the things that gets kicked around a fair amount in this movie is the fact that, especially at the start of this movie, Bruce is basically living with a king-sized death wish. Mm -hmm. One of the things that, on some level, he wants to happen is that by putting on the mask again and going back out in the night, this is a way that he can get himself killed. And on some level, that's what he wants. That's what he thinks he deserves. And Bane astutely recognizes that. And honestly, I think he would have killed. I mean, that's probably the only reason he didn't kill Batman was because of the fact that that's not really a defeat. In Batman's mind, and Bane knows that. Right. 
Mm-hmm. So he wants to find a way to basically just fuck him up other ways. And so this is what he's chosen to do is not really break his back so much, but I guess just give him a, I guess sprain his back really badly. Cause Hey, that's some really thick armor that he's got <laughs> in the back of his outfit, I suppose. And take him to this prison in an undisclosed part of the world. Yeah, throw him into the inescape the inescapable pit that also gets really good Wi Fi or really good has really good satellite TV. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you notice that too? Yeah. <laughs> First rate accommodations. Food delivery, well, I don't know how that works exactly. Plumbing, hey, don't ask. You don't want to know. I do like that they're bringing back the plot thread from the first movie of Rosh, of you know him finish, finishing off that work that had been started by his mentor. And to some extent, it makes now the, the Joker really an interlude in the midst of this other story it, that began and, and is now ending the series. Yeah, it does. And, you know, when I was gathering my notes together for all of this, I was kind of reminded, you know, what I said when I was talking about uh, the Karate Kid Part 3 way back in episode number 49 of this show. What I said was that one reason that the Karate Kid 3 works for me is because it's clearly the closing act of a trilogy. Mm-hmm. And what it does is what any good third movie in a trilogy ought to do. And it revisits the first movie. See, so there's a kind of weird pattern here to a lot of trilogies. Not all of them, but a lot of them seem to follow this pattern where the first movie basically establishes the hero or the character, the protagonist, you know, whoever. They show you who he is, what he's like, where he comes from, his favorite food, all of that stuff. And then it turns him into a hero. The second movie escalates the plot, builds upon it, and basically shows the hero engaging arguably his coolest villain. And then the third movie, in turn, will revisit the themes and the conflicts of the first movie vis-a-vis the same villain or a relative of the same villain or his best friend or his garbage man or, or, or whatever. But that first movie's themes, conflicts, villains, all that stuff, it all comes back in the third film. And generally this coincides not only with the hero's fall from grace, but his mission to rebuild himself. And what I said in episode 49 is that's actually a pretty good description of the Karate Kid trilogy. And it's not exactly a perfect description for the Dark Knight Rises, but it it nevertheless still applies a lot to the Dark Knight Rises. And I just wanted to throw that out there, that this isn't, as you say, this is not really a sequel, or at least it's not really a follow-up to the Dark Knight. This is really, I guess, a fulfillment of Batman Begins, like you were saying. Yeah, I think so, yeah. So... Uh, amazingly good Wi-Fi, as you say, and basically, 
escape is thought to be virtually impossible, but it comes out, you know, one of the inmates tells Bruce the story of Rachel Gould's child, who's, who was born in the prison and cared for by a fellow prisoner before escaping. And this is the only prisoner to have ever done so. And Bruce assumes this, uh, this child to be Bane, which we will be coming back to when we come back to it. But in the here and now, Bane lures Gotham, uh, Gotham City police underground where he traps them there. He then kills Mayor Anthony Garcia and forces Dr. Uh, Dr. Pavel, a Russian nuclear physicist that this synopsis has roundly ignored up to this moment, forces Dr. Pavel, a Russian nuclear physicist that he kidnapped from, Uz I don't even know how to pronounce the name of this country, Uzbekistan? Yes. Ah, okay. Well, thank you. Six months prior to convert the reactor core into a nuclear bomb. Bane uses the bomb to hold the city hostage and isolate Gotham City from the rest of the world. Using Gordon's stolen speech, Bane reveals the cover-up of dense crime and releases the prisoners of Blackgate Penitentiary, initiating chaos. The wealthy and powerful have their property expropriated, they're dragged from their homes, and are given show trials presided over by Dr. Jonathan Crane, where all are sentenced to death. And I'm going to put a pin in all of this and say, Professor, if this is territory you'd rather not go into, I completely understand. But what I'm going to say is that, you know, this whole sort of eat, eat the rich type of thing. Mm -hmm. When I was watching this movie for the first time, there were two clear inspirations here, right? Or I, no, I shouldn't say inspirations. There were two, there were two, I don't know, fucking whatever. Uh, there were the first, the first one was a tale of two cities. And that I think was probably at least part of the inspiration for all of this. But it does need to be said that I probably would not have found this idea of killing the rich quite as, you know, a tale of two cities or not. I would not have found that to be quite as persuasive had it not been for the, I guess the onset of Occupy Wall Street and then also other Occupy movements that popped up. Guys, this truly is a coincidence. I mean, I think the Dark Knight Rises was either close to being finished or already finished filming at the time that Occupy Wall Street became a thing. So this honestly, this really was just a cosmic coincidence that, you know, about six, seven, eight months before this movie came out, we had a, a sort of a real world, I shouldn't say example of, of, of Bane's little miniature revolution here, but a little bit of uh, precedent, I suppose. This idea that, uh, of at least questioning, you know, do the rich have some type of obligation to at least not fucking victimize the rest of society and and basically things that are maybe too sticky to go into uh, in the middle of a comic book podcast. And so I'm going to very quickly turn the mic over to Professor Allen and make it his problem. <laughs> That's what I'm here for. I think that it was less a coincidence 
perhaps, then maybe the Nolans tapping into something that would eventually become Occupy. Mm-hmm. I mean, that didn't come out of nowhere. True. So maybe, you know, uh, you know, finding some of that rhetoric um, and, and because it could coincidentally that it turned into a movement. <clears throat> um, but I think they were probably reflecting or tapping into that sense of unease that birthed Occupy you know, in the same way that they were tapping into unease with surveillance in the prior movie. Right. You know, so I think, I think they, to some extent, fingers on the pulse or, or, or whatever has had, had their ears open Mm -hmm. to sort of broadly speaking, what was going on in, in society. And those issues are big enough that they don't necessarily date the movie. Right. You know, the, the surveillance state issues in the dark night, you know, I, I, we're going to be dealing with that, those types of issues for quite some time, I think. And ideas of, of economic insecurity is not just a idea that, you know, bubbles up, you know, that that's just a blip and goes away. Right. I mean, there's always an undercurrent of that in, in societies that, that, that are going to come up. So they managed to find these things that are in society to tap into, but that aren't trendy. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, that makes sense. Um, it does need to be said that there are many, many, many <clears throat> influences on The Dark Knight Rises. And to me, the single biggest comic book influence on The Dark Knight Rises, undeniably, is the cult. There's a shadowy revolutionary figure living in the sewers who recruits homeless people and vagrants into his own personal army and then takes over the city by destroying all bridges and tunnels into and out of Gotham City. He even kills the mayor using a bomb, after which he encourages his followers to murder the wealthy and the powerful in the city as retribution. And this all happens, by the way, while Batman is absent from duty. And like I say, I mean, there's the tale of two cities thing. We cannot ignore that. But the similarities between at least this aspect of The Dark Knight Rises and the cult, they just, they really can't be ignored, at least in my opinion. And in both stories, the government attempts to intervene in the occupation of Gotham City, but they pretty quickly discover that they're just no match for the enemy's strength or for his army. And so, apart from The Dark Knight Returns, the comic book influences that people most often mention are Nightfall and No Man's Land. And yeah, while there are the, while those things are kind of influences on The Dark Knight Rises, my God's honest opinion is, you know, No Man's Land for as good as it is, it's not as influential on this story as I don't know, as as much as people want to say. 
to me, I think the cult is a much bigger influence. Again, it's not quite A is A, but if somebody wanted to call this a loose adaptation of the cult, you've got you got a leg to stand on. Where mm. if you wanted to call this a, even a loose adaptation of No Man's Land, I don't think anybody believes that. So no, anyway. it, it it just takes on really the one aspect of No Man's Land. The, the physical aspect of being of the city being cut off. Right. But it doesn't do anything No Man's Land is wish, with it, which it can't do. Because right. No Man's Land is – it's a whole different story. It's so big. It's almost an era. It's not – it's like right, it's an idea. Right. So, so you're, you're, you're just taking you know, a, a visual. Uh, to me, the, the No Man's Land part of this, is, it, it's almost an Easter egg. Right. You know, it's a shout out. To a particular story, but then, but that it's it's a, or a reference, but it it not much more in depth than that. I think you're. I I hadn't thought of the cult, but certainly hard to argue when you lay it out like that. Well, that's what I'm here for. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I at least wanted to toss all of that out there and just see what see what comes back to me. Uh, if you're ready to move on, um, yep. After spend- oh, one thing I, I I I do need to go back and 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 say one thing that I think that there this this and then the scene later later on where the special effects I think fail a little bit to me mm-hmm. and that and that's in in the football scene the just the way in which the stadium and the field crumbles and and then the after where everyone is so quiet listening to bed it's just, it's, I, I to me maybe it's because I've been to some sporting events <laughs> that that one stands out to me as a, a scene that does not fit the grounded realistic there would be panic yeah there, there would. would be a lot there wouldn't you know you you cannot you you could hear a pin drop when Bain is addressing the stadium. That's crazy. That's crazy. And I that, that loses me a, a little bit. Uh, as, again, as well as how some of the CGI happens. Right. Uh, but. I, you know what? I, I <laughs> took the words right out of my mouth. I, I, <laughs> I really can't. I really can't think of anything really to put on the other side of that because. It's that is it works. It's one of those things where it's it's dramatically correct. But as with a couple of other things, it's not really all that believable, you know. So, yeah, I'm I'm right there with you. But anyway, um, after spending months recovering and exercising, Bruce Wayne escapes from the prison. I kid you not. That is literally all the synopsis says. <laughs> and it's like, wow, there is so much more to it than that. But basically, Bruce makes a few attempts to escape from the prison because it's a pit that's been dug into the ground. And there are ropes that you can that you can use at least somewhat to, to climb and and try to escape, get your way out. And Bruce keeps failing. 
And what he eventually comes to realize is that the reason he keeps failing is because even now, on some level, he still wants to die. And what he ultimately needs to do is he has to not only want to live, which is a separate thing altogether, he has to not only want to live, he has to fear dying again. And that is... When you think about it, I mean, it doesn't actually make a whole lot of logical sense, but I guess you could argue that if if on some level what he wants to do is die, then maybe he's not running as fast as he can. He's not necessarily jumping as far as he can. And if he knows he's got the safety net or a safety rope attached to him, maybe he's not trying his best. He's got to actually want to do this. And so it's, I don't know, it works great on a thematic level. But it's one of those things that I guess in terms of like practicalities, you kind of have to wonder how well it works at all. But in, I guess in terms of the thematic level, Bruce climbing out of the pit can be seen as a sort of a thematic fulfillment to the fall that he took in the Batcave at the beginning of Batman Begins. There he fell into a pit and Thomas Wayne told him that the reason that we fall is so that we can learn how to pick ourselves up again. And at every step of the way throughout Bruce's entire life, there's always been somebody there to cushion his fall, to make sure it doesn't hurt as bad as he as it could have. And then and even if it's just in a metaphorical sense, they help him back to his feet. Here he's fallen and now there's literally no nobody left that can help him. You know, the the police, if they're not trapped. In Gotham City, they're in hiding. Alfred quit. Bruce is completely alone. And so the only way he's going to get out of this is if he literally learns how to pick himself up again. So. <clears throat> now, you ready to get back into the synopsis yeah. here? Mm-hmm. All right, so... After spending months recovering and exercising, Bruce escapes from the prison. He returns through means... I love that that's one sentence. I'm sorry. (laughs) Well, (laughs) I have no idea who wrote this, but wow, talk about... Well, whatever. Uh, Bruce returns to Gotham City City through means that are never really explained. And there he enlists Selina Kyle, John Blake, Miranda Tate, James Gordon, and Lucius Fox to help stop the bomb's detonation. He hands the bat pod over to Selina, tasking her with helping people evacuate and then saving herself. She asks him, meaning Batman, she asks him to come with her, leaving Gotham to its fate, but he refuses. So I'm going to put a pin in this and say, there's actually, um, and this was, this actually popped up in the trailers a fair amount where Selena basically says, you have done everything for this city. You have given everything to this city. You know, these people are going to die. There's nothing you can do to stop it. Leave. Come with me. We'll get out of here. We'll find a way to escape, and we can just leave all of this behind. Let these people kill themselves. Who cares anymore? And... Batman's answer to that is he doesn't tell her no. He doesn't say, I'm not going to leave with you. He never rejects her offer. 
what he does is he disagrees with her and says that I haven't given these people everything yet. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, I like at the beginning of that scene, I think it is, mm-hmm. where we actually have her sort of patrolling her part of the city. Mm-hmm. I don't know if she stops a mugging or stops something or another. Yeah. And so I kind of I, – so I, I like that, that, that uh, you know, Cat, Cat, Catwoman has always been a somewhat complex character. And certainly Batman's feelings for her have certainly been complex over the 75 years. And by that I mean since the very first meeting right? Uh, for the next 75 years. Uh, so I, I sort of like that we see her – doing a little bit of good to the best uh, the best that she can at this point. It is kind uh, of strange to think that she is the lone major representative now of law and order in Gotham City. I mean, how scary is that? (laughs) I mean, and and to some extent, that's a slight nod to No Man's Land. Yes, it is. You know, where they had – the city had been broken up and in some cases the villains were were keeping order such as it is in in their segment, in their section of town. Mm-hmm. Well, there's this is a movie that often gets kind of picked on for taking itself a little bit too seriously. And there is a moment between Batman and Catwoman where Batman there's somebody out there who would call this mansplaining, but Batman basically tries to teach her how to use the bat pod. And she basically cuts him off and says, hey, I can figure this out. You know, you're not the only person with a working brain. And, you know, Catwoman is one of the few people who really talks trash to Batman in this movie. Lucius Fox is really the other one. And you don't get a whole lot of that in this movie, but it's always kind of enjoyable when it pops up. And I just I there's no deeper meaning to it. I just kind of like that moment where she says, hey, I've got this. So, now, to get back in the summary, while the police and Bane's forces clash, Batman overpowers Bane. He interrogates Bane, trying to find the location of the bomb's trigger. But Miranda Tate intervenes and stabs him with a two-inch long blade that somehow manages to incapacitate him. <laughs> I'm going to put this on pause and say, well, actually, hold on, no, I'll go a step further. She reveals herself to be Talia Al Ghul, which is that's how she can do it. Right, she's got magic, mystic Al Ghul powers. There you go, <laughs> Raish Al Ghul, Raz Al Ghul's daughter, and Bane is her protector. He aided her escape from the prison. I'm going to put this all on pause and say, I must ask, is there anybody? among the comic book fan community that didn't see this reveal coming? Is there anyone out there that thought that Marion, I don't even know how to pronounce this name. Cotillard. Cotillard. All right. Did anybody out there think there was ever a chance that she wasn't Talia? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I kind of walked into this thinking, yeah, you just wait. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there are certain things in this movie in this movie that really are telegraphed, blatantly so in one particular case. But this is one of those things that they really did try to keep secret. But there's this moment in the end battle where Talia is basically wandering around the, I guess, the battlefield, 
And she's got this outfit on. It's loosely militaristic, I guess. And, I mean, even if I didn't have the common sense of saying, wow, you're bringing in a totally new cast member who has a sort of femme fatale look to her, and you want me to believe that she's not Talia, okay. But what you probably don't need to do is show her wandering around a battle scene wearing military fatigues and... Yeah, hey, look, if that's what you're going for, dude, you got to be a little bit more careful. That's all I'm saying. So, nevertheless, this they denied it on the record on more than one occasion, but no, she is, in fact, Talia. So I guess as far as a villain is concerned, this is maybe the one truly original villain that Nolan adapts for The Dark Knight Rises that's never been done before. And even this, I mean... I kind of have to say, you know, you can't really just have Talia in a movie all by herself. Raish al Ghul needs to have been established at some point or another in the process. So she's sort of derivative of Raish to begin with. But nevertheless, here she is anyway. I'm, did it ever seem likely to you that she wasn't Talia? Or did this catch you off guard or, or what? You know, I, I, I can't remember the extent to which it may it was probably spoiled beforehand i tend to not to be the let's go midnight or now let's go thursday at seven o'clock in the evening for the friday showing mm-hmm. so that's not me so i'm and and spoilers don't bother me um you know knowing something that's man, I'm, I'm usually the person who has to sit down and watch the movie twice anyway yeah. to catch to catch everything so knowing a few things beforehand, I feel like, well, maybe I can just watch it once and get everything now because I'm, I'm going in preloaded with with some knowledge. So I can't say I, – I, I can't remember if I was surprised. I can't remember even how well the spoiler was kept you know, within the fandom or, mm-hmm. because sometimes geeks have actually been pretty good about that, about you know keeping those things quiet for a reasonable amount of time. So I, I can't remember. I, I do not remember being surprised, whether that's because I walked in knowing it or because, as you said, I figured it out. I'm a big fan of Talia. So <laughs> uh, I was waiting for her to, um, to, uh, uh, to some extent. And since you, they had already seeded the fact that they were bringing back the, the League and the Al Ghouls, it's certainly not a, a shocker. You know, to the well-informed comic nerd. Agreed. Well, I don't know. I, just, I it, it wasn't surprising to me, but I, it's one of those things where I, I kind of have to wonder, am I the problem here, or is it Nolan, or, or what? But I don't know. Whatever. So Talia uses the detonator, but Gordon, by that point, has successfully approached the the bomb on which the truck is – sorry, the truck on which the bomb is riding around – and blocks her signal, preventing remote detonation. Talia, in a fit of anger, leaves to find the bomb while Bane prepares to kill Batman, but Catwoman zips in on the Batpod and saves Batman by blasting Bane into the next lifetime. Batman and Catwoman pursue Talia, hoping to bring the bomb back to the reactor chamber where it can be stabilized or drowned. Talia's truck crashes courtesy of a missile that Batman fired at it, but she rem- uh, she remotely floods and then destroys the reactor chamber before dying. With no way to stop the detonation, 
Batman uses the bat, which is a super high-tech giant freaking helicopter-looking thing, to haul the bomb out over the bay where it detonates. I've got a lot to say about this, so I, what I want to... Uh, okay. If you would, uh, just you go ahead and go first, because this could actually take me a while to, to work my way through here. Well, I was going to ask you what you thought, uh, or, or I'll just say that it, to me it's it's interesting that Batman doesn't kill Bane. He's dead, but Catwoman doesn't. Right. And even to some extent, Batman doesn't kill Talia, though he's pretty directly involved in that. I thought it was interesting that in the one direct act of killing was not our named lead hero doing it. It was the uh, mostly villainous, occasionally helpful semi-partner right. who, um, who, who actually did the who, – who directly did the killing. So I thought that was an, an interesting – um, an, an interesting choice. I, you know, I mentioned the the CGI mm-hmm. at the foot at the football scene. The other place where it, it jumped out at me that 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 this is not good is as you described it, the huge mega super helicopter flying in between the buildings of Gotham. Now he does specifically say, "I want something that's able to." That's able to, to do this. But st- still, to me, the scale doesn't fit. If this is either supposed to be New York or Chicago or whatever the American equivalent is, the buildings are way closer together than that. Yes. I don't think that would be – I don't think it's possible to do and that. Then just, and then maybe it's just that it's been four years. But the CG itself is plainly CG. It's just, there's, it, it, and, it, and that jumps out at me as a, oh, that's a computer. That's that's there's there's nothing practical about that, no. about those flying scenes. Well, and especially, that's a- especially the scenes between the buildings. And it's again, I, I sense that was probably true at the time too. It's only been four years, so the the CGI problems with that jumped out. I think the scale there was a, again because it's not practical. The scale changes, how yeah. big or small, how close or far away. The helicopter gets to the buildings is, is is quite inconsistent as well, and that's all the more. I was gonna say so. So that's actually one of the major issues I had. I mean, again, we're talking sort of picky technical things. Well, is it though? Because I mean, yeah, when yeah, you think no. about it, it's all the more egregious because the few times that Nolan really used CGI in Batman Begins, it maybe it's recognizably CGI. But it, it's still convincing, nevertheless. Mm-hmm. And the few times that he used it in The Dark Knight, same thing. You know, it it may not necessarily be perfect, but it's really well done. Whereas in The Dark Knight Rises, there are some times when it looks a little chintzy. I got to be honest with you. Yeah, yeah, agreed. So it's just strange to think about. So now I've actually got quite a lot to say about. The, like the I guess the climax of this movie, the explosive climax. Um, there's 
there's a very strong argument that The Dark Knight Rises is a movie that's all about explosions. Great change in The Dark Knight Rises is usually accompanied by explosions. And the thing about it is that the explosions take on greater and greater magnitude and greater and greater importance as the story goes on. So Batman's premature return to action earlier in the movie shows him using this EMP device to shoot Bane's escaping motorcycle. And this results in only minor, tiny little sparks. And it suggests the the possibility that Batman, he may be back in action, but his return is kind of meaningless and ineffectual. Bane still escapes in spite of being pursued by both Batman and the Gotham City Police. The next great explosion is, at least in my opinion, a lot bigger and more significant in that it destroys the football field, the underground tunnels through the city, and all roads and bridges that are leading into and out of Gotham City. And this explosion symbolizes Bane's supremacy, as well as the collapse of civil order and law enforcement in Gotham. And this series of explosions puts the city in Bane's hands. After that, another and less powerful explosion is fired by Batman and frees the police from their underground prison, this kind of makeshift prison that Bane had fashioned for him, and somehow managed to feed them and keep them from starving to death all that time. But I don't question that. This represents great change as Gotham City once again has police running around to enforce law and order. But, and this is key, their grasp on legitimacy is tenuous, as is demonstrated by the fact that the explosion that freed them isn't anywhere near as powerful as the explosion that first trapped them. The final explosion, that's the one that's absolute. That's the nuclear blast outside of Gotham City as Batman flies the reactor core out over the bay. And this explosion represents the final defeat of the League of Shadows and the restoration of civil law and order. But more than that, this nuclear explosion represents Batman's last great act of sacrifice. This explosion represents the loss of Bruce Wayne's dreams of clean, renewable energy for the city. But it also marks the end of lies and falsehood in Gotham City. All the major secrets have been exposed to all or at least some members of the public, and the truth is now out there. Gordon's sins have been exposed and laid bare for all the world to see. And all the world now knows that Batman's sins don't really exist. And so I guess what I'm saying is with his final act, Batman has basically made sure that he's always going to be remembered as Gotham City's greatest hero. And so the first explosion that Batman launched against Bane using the EMP, that was hollow, meaningless, and I guess ineffectual. But this final explosion represents, well, among other things, it represents Batman's triumph over Bane and the League of Shadows. And Batman literally and symbolically defeats the League of Shadows during the climax of The Dark Knight Rises. And I don't really hear people talk about that that side of stuff too much, so I just wanted to throw that all out there. Back to you. 
that's interesting. I like I I I, I like the way you you put those uh, put those things together. Well, thank you. I, I try my best. And uh, and we know that Batman is considered a hero because he gets a statue. I love the <laughs> statue. It looked pretty good. It looked pretty good. And speaking of that, actually, I want to come to that in sequence here. Uh, the, the, I guess, epilogue. Because, you know, there's an argument that the movie really does end with the explosion. But sure. the epilogue, in the aftermath, Batman is presumed dead and is honored as a hero with a statue, like you were saying. <laughs> with Bruce also presumed dead, Wayne Manor becomes an orphanage and his remaining estate is left to Alfred. Lucius Fox discovers that Bruce has, in fact, fixed the Bat's autopilot, and Gordon finds the Bat signal on on police headquarters totally refurbished, which doesn't really make sense, because it's strange to think this is the only Batman movie that's ever been, as far as I know, where the Bat signal is never used. But anyway, Alfred finds that Bruce is alive and well, together with Selina, while visiting Florence. John Blake arrives from the police force and following Wayne's instructions discovers the Batcave and its contents. The end. So, big doings. Like you were saying, the statue. I freaking love the statue. I would like to have like a reproduction of that statue. I'd buy that statue. I'd buy six inch, eight inch, 12 inch version of that. Full size even, yeah. Just keep it in the (laughs) living room. Yeah, why not? Oh, and inflatable for Halloween. Oh, I like that. That's a good idea. <laughs> and one of the things I kind of like about that statue is the fact that the little veil they have on it is blue, just like mm. his cape from the comics. It's That's just a neat little moment. Somebody had his thinking cap on with that, I'm convinced. So basically what we're seeing here is... Somehow, Batman survives a nuclear friggin' explosion. How do you figure that? Comics? Oh no, he's. I mean, he escaped at some point because there was the autopilot. It was the autopilot was was running. So yeah. he 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 either was never in it or he escaped beforehand. I mean, that was the point of the autopilot. So he had gotten away somehow from the. From the explosion. Again, either he bailed over the city mm-hmm. or he ne- or into the river. And through and, the woods. And and never um, and never got out. Or or he or he never was in the plane to begin with. Fair enough. Well now I do now I do have a technical question. And I'm not sure it it, it didn't seem like much time had passed. But the when Scarecrow was sentencing people, yes, um, the options were death or exile. Yeah, and exile meant having to cross the frozen, I guess, Gotham River or whatever it was. Right. And a first off, I'm not sure that the Hudson or the Chicago have ever frozen, or if they have, it's pretty rare. There was no evidence of cold weather. <laughs> None. Other in other parts of the movie, and at this point, clearly, when he's flying the the bomb over the bay, there's no evidence that it, that it had recently frozen either. So I'm not sure what the 
walking out onto the ice scenes other than some drama. Yeah. They were, to me, very manufactured, especially in this context of there being no evidence of cold weather elsewhere, and there's no evidence of this this bay, you know, where he's flying, the ocean, whatever he's flying the the bomb over, having recently been frozen either. Just a little bit of snow somewhere, you know, a, a, a an ice float somewhere out there. I don't know. Yeah, anything, anything at all would have been, <laughs> it would have been better than, well, the nothing that we got. So I can't really justify that. That's one of the questions I've always kind of had, too, that, you know, it. what we're led to believe is that Batman basically rescues Gordon from being I guess, exiled to death. And within a day, possibly two, he and Gordon save the day, and then Batman flies the nuke out over the bay, which is now miraculously unfrozen. So how the hell does that work? And I don't have an answer for that other than because... I mean, I guess, I, I guess you know, some time had passed, but, but by then you were on a pretty tight couple-day countdown. I mean, it's something like 90 days had passed or 75 days had passed when the cops were underground. They called out a specific number there. It had been quite some time. But um, by the time they started counting down the days left on the bomb, I'm not sure that the numbers work out. I mean, maybe they do. Um, still, I'm not, I'm still not in love with the river freezing. Just that part by itself. I yeah. was not. I was not in love with that part. Mm, I mean, I, that too. Absent, makes absent anything else, but. <laughs> well, one of the other things that people kind of pounce on when it comes to this movie is John Blake doesn't necessarily become Batman. At least, not explicitly. It could be that he becomes something else, but the fact that the bat signal on top of police headquarters has been refurbished. And it's still got the bat symbol on it. What I think we're supposed to infer is that John Blake becomes the next Batman. And there are people who really take exception to that. Number one, from the standpoint that Batman is Bruce Wayne and Bruce Wayne is Batman. The two are one. And so if you're going to have Batman running around Gotham City, it needs to be Bruce Wayne. I'm not saying that I'm not prepared to take an opinion on uh, take a stance on that just yet. What are your thoughts on that? Well, perhaps in the contents in the context of the comic books, maybe Bruce Wayne again has a very unique mission that he's given that, that he gives himself. And it's so personal that maybe it's reasonable that someone else would not have the same drive, the same determination to turn it back into a discussion of business. This is sometimes called the founder's dilemma where the founder of the company has such a clear vision, vision for what they want in terms of product line, culture of the company, et cetera, plans for the future that when he retires or passes on, Sometimes the company is a little flat-footed as to what to do next because they don't have 
the same drive that Steve Jobs did, right? Or that Dave Thomas did with Wendy's or whatever it is, right? Um, you know, then businesses can certainly flourish multi generationally in terms of leadership, but it's a struggle. It's it's not it's 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 not always clear whether the next generation of leadership will immediately take up the mantle and be as, be as successful because part of it is they lack this whatever drove that that first group is different right what what drove gates and balmer in their garage building computers is different from the current ceo of the company you know uh, and so so there's there's a change there and that that transition is not always smooth or successful hmm. so you know you and so uh blake here does not have he has some similar backstory to batman but a lot of people do right but no one has the exact specific psychological dna right <laughs> to turn themselves into into Batman, so I understand it on 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 that level. Um, again, going back to the comics, however, after Batman's bat back was broken, we did get some people running their way through the Batman outfit. Um, I mean, temporarily, because in comics the status quo, as you said, is always has to we have to revert eventually to Batman being Bruce Wayne and vice versa. But in terms of this movie universe, a couple of things that they've called out along the way. One was this idea of Bruce Wayne being Batman for a temporary period of time. So that works for me. Mm -hmm. And I believe they also mentioned something. I think it, it, it might be, Part of what they're getting at, especially in the first movie, I guess, about Batman being a symbol as much as being a name or being a person. So they've sort of built in this idea, and I think they may have mentioned it in this movie as well, the idea that well, someone else could pick up the mantle um, after me. So I think that was teased out a little bit uh, in the movie. Then if you want to get meta about it and talk about bigger picture just outside outside the world of the movie and talk about movie making mm -hmm. um, you know the last time this franchise was was going you know Tim Burton did two movies and then the, but the franchise continued after the quote unquote original person so there's some extent to which Nolan was saying, if you want to continue, I'm done. But if you want the franchise to continue, here's a way. <laughs> well, and 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 within the movie universe, I don't mind it. It it get it 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 works for me in the context of the stories that the movies were telling. Right. Well, the. The only thing about it that, that kind of bothered me, I mean, if somebody wanted to say that, you know, John Blake wouldn't last two seconds as Batman, you know, whatever. If I can 
if I can accept the fact that somehow this guy can dodge this many bullets wearing all of that heavy armor and stuff, if I can, if I can accept the idea that Bruce Wayne does it, it's not a, a, a much bigger step to, you know what? Maybe I can assume that John Blake can do it too. You know, that's certainly a possibility, but there is a little bit of, and and but we do get the idea that maybe Batman, whether it's Bruce or whoever, is going to largely retire from stopping the muggings down in Blue Haven. Mm-hmm. Mm. Maybe he's just going to, you know, maybe he's just going to deal with the big stuff. <laughs> You know, yeah. Uh, 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 you know, Blake is prepared. The next time a nuclear bomb is ready to go off, he can don the or you know s- s- something rising to some uh, uh, some major level uh, that he'll be prepared and have the resources to uh, <laughs> to deal with something big like that. And maybe he's not going out every night and and uh, stopping the random purse snatching here and there. Mm. Well, I did. I, I wouldn't go so far as to call this hypocrisy, but I did sort of, you know, wonder about it. That in the Dark Knight, one of the it, this wasn't a major part of the movie, but in the Dark Knight, there were some copycats that oh, were right. running around the city, yes. and Batman very much opposed them. And here he basically recruits his own and more or less has him on the payroll. So I don't know. Maybe it. it yeah, but this it, guy's not wearing a hockey sweater. Yeah, I know that's I mean, true. This guy would have the real, <laughs> the, the real equipment at least. Yeah, that's true. But nevertheless, I at least wanted to toss that all out there and 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 mention that. Yeah, I I mean I still do see it as a as a contradiction, but whatever. The fact of the matter is that. I accept this movie, and I've said before that one reason that I appreciate at least the conclusion of it is is because it shows a real conclusion to Batman's story. And Bruce willingly gives up being Batman. He isn't defeated by old age, and he's not killed in the line of duty. He realizes he's given Gotham City everything he possibly can. And so because of that, he considers his mission to be, on some level or another, accomplished. Not not having a death wish anymore doesn't really hurt either. <laughs> now, in my trademark Emily headcanon for Batman, what I've always assumed is that there's a day coming, you know, somewhere in... Batman's late 30s or late 40s, at some point along the way, there's a there's a morning that's going to come where he wakes up and realizes, you know what, hey, my parents would never have wanted this life for me. Now, I've saved this city dozens of times over. I've defeated supervillains as Batman, and I've saved uncounted lives through Bruce Wayne's charity and social work. Oh, and did I mention the time I towed a nuke out over the 
the harbor to save the city. Did I mention that too? <laughs> well, I was actually talking more about the comics, but yeah. I mean, I've raised <laughs> up two generations of, of defenders for Gotham City. So what I – this guys, this is truly what I think, all right? Bruce would move away from Gotham City, and he'd settle down and and – Hawaii or some other place. And he'd think to himself that his parents' death wasn't his fault. He, But he's still done a ton of good, and he deserves to retire and get married and find some kind of happiness. And you know what? That's what his parents would have wanted. And The Dark Knight comes the closest of everything that I've ever found of showing Bruce Wayne accepting his parents' deaths, finding some kind of inner peace, and then allowing himself to move on. Because I believe that's what he would do. That's what, ultimately, in the end, I think anybody would do. And I like the idea that he's doing it now for the right reasons. He's not going into retirement because he's heartbroken. He's going into retirement because... Like I said before, it, it really is mission accomplished. You know, he's succeeded now. And he hasn't left the city completely unguarded, but he's allowing himself something now. He, he has something now just for himself. And he wants what he wants. It's the right thing to want, and he wants it for for all the right reasons. And, you know, I mean, I can or anybody really can pick apart, you know, some aspect of this movie or another. But in the end, you know, it does give us an end of the story. And for that reason, I like, it. you know, I, I appreciate that aspect of it. One of the things I say a lot on, on my podcasts, one of my regular go-to expressions, it seems is that endings are hard. Yes. And that's, part of why you know is it, it and comic books are often compared to soap operas for the reason that comic books and soap operas are always in the second act well, for it's true sev- 70 years plus years of, of, of second acts and ending resolution is difficult we've seen movies we've read comics we've read novels where things fall apart in the last 20 minutes it, it's hard it's hard to wrap up a story and I think for as big a canvas as big a, a task that Nolan had been given had taken on himself I thought it was a pretty reasonable solid ending like you said just the, the fact that there was an ending yeah <laughs> an ending that pretty well holds together and seems reasonable given the prior movies and what went on in this movie. I think it makes sense. Agreed. What do you think of him ending up with Selena? She's as good as anybody. And honestly, (laughs) the the part of me that really cherishes the pre-crisis earth 2 and goings on with that and where they took those characters what they were able to do bruce married the selena on earth 2 and not just married her he married her because she's the great love of his life you know she's the one that didn't get away he actually I mean, got to marry the one no con- mean, we, hmm? we said that uh you know, they have had an attraction. It's basically love at first sight. 
Yeah. I mean, it is in it's 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 not in the in, in the detective run, so it's not the first appearance, but it is in Batman number one. Right. Is her first appearance, and he lets her go because he has a crush on her. <laughs> I mean that that's in essence what happens, and Robin is quite confused by this. Yes. <laughs> so. Uh, say what you want about gay subtext. It was not there in 1940. No. Because he let her go because he kind of liked her. He was sweet on her. And he was and, kind of and, a cad for doing it because he right. makes a point of saying he already had a girl. <laughs> that, that's right. That's right. So, again, to me, this there some aspects of, of this movie that were custom-made for me. I mentioned I, I like Talia. Mm-hmm. And, and I like Bruce and Selena. You know that that works for me. That's a good dynamic. With... Either e- either one of those would would work for me. There, there's something about him being attracted to someone who's a little broken, a little who who's who's not 100% pure and upstanding. Who has a bit of a past, to put it mildly. Well, yeah. I mean, if if Batman has to get married, I mean. I think, honestly, the best candidate for it, it's got to be Catwoman, you know? But I think so. I've always had a, no matter whether whether or not Catwoman's in the picture or not, I've always had a kind of difficult time convincing myself that, not that Batman could love Talia, that he could truly accept her, you know? I mean, she is who she is, and she's a murderer. You know, she has probably killed people, and I don't mean like saying to her goons, hey, I want you to go over here and kill this guy. I mean, she's probably no, yeah. done the job herself. I wouldn't be surprised. And probably not at a distance. No. Probably close up and personal. And, you know, there's a part of him that will always be... I mean, I don't want to get too specific, but, you know, I did ultimately decide when I was in my 20s to stop seeing somebody. And it's not because she killed somebody, but she did something on a re- fairly regular basis that that is so far outside of my sphere of existence. That is so far outside of my wheelhouse. It, it, it's almost that this is one of those game-changing decisions in life that you don't get to just pretend like this never happened. You know, uh, you don't know. And so it doesn't change the way that... The, or it, it doesn't change the fact that you love them, but it does change the way that now... You're going to have, assuming you're stupid enough to stay with this person, you're going to have a very specific type of relationship with them, and it will be fulfilling, ultimately, to neither of you. It's not about whether or not you love her. It's, do you love her enough? Do you love yourself enough? I mean, this is not going to happen. You know, it can't. And I just, I've never been able to buy it. You know, that... Again, not that Batman could love Catwoman. I buy that he does. I cannot buy that he could accept her. You know, how do you accept somebody? You mean Talia? Yeah, sorry, my bad. Talia. Uh, Catwoman, I totally buy. Just to be clear, it's Talia. Yeah. And so, I don't know. Not trying to beat it to death. I just want to be, just want to be clear here. So, um, now I've got a couple of other notes. If uh, how are you doing on time? Great. Okay. All right. Well, I've got just a couple of other. Yep. I've 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 got one very minor one. Oh, go right ahead. That is that, and and this is a blink and you'll miss it. He may have had one line mm-hmm. in the movie, 
but there's a point at which sort of as it's becoming no man's land and i guess as the it's clear that there's a nuclear bomb going off or prepared to go off whatever that that that's the threat they call in washington mm mm-hmm. And they talk to, I guess, Secretary oh. of State and the President. Mm-hmm. And the President is William Devane. Yes. Played, played by William Devane, who previously, a few years before, <laughs> had been the Secretary of State on 24. Mm-hmm. And a few years later, was the President on 24. Yes! <laughs> this happens. In, so, the, so 24 takes place in the Nolanverse. Yes, it does. <laughs> Which explains a lot about 24, actually. How dark and gritty that world is, right? Yeah, you know, and that's the thing. It, it, it does kind of make sense. Yeah. I can see that. I can see that. Yeah, you can draw a lot of straight lines, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I totally forgot about that. Thank you for mentioning that. That's well, when great. I saw that, I said, I got to rewind it. Did, did I just see what I thought I saw? <laughs> and then when you put the chronology together, it's pretty funny. Yeah, it, it, it actually adds up, too. It works, so... <laughs> Now, I've got some some other notes here. Um, Basically, this sort of, again, relates to themes and recurring motifs of the movie. Bane and Batman both have secret underground layers that include waterfalls and generally just a lot of water flowing around places. And I don't think it's out of line to say that Nolan could be inviting comparisons to Batman's methods of cleaning up Gotham City versus Bane's methods of cleaning up Gotham City. Now, obviously, it's not a perfect comparison since Bane intends to burn this bitch to the ground, but nevertheless, you get you, you get the idea. So. Yeah, but if you go back to Ra's al Ghul's vision, I mean, part of it was we have to burn the forest to save it. Yeah. Might burn the village to save it. Or we have to prune the bushes back, whatever the analogy would be. Right, we have to thin the herd for its long-term betterment. Right, and so you know they, in some weird sense, I I think it's more I I buy it a little more with with uh, with Roz than I do with Bane, but there is you know if you go deep enough, some mm-hmm. similar goals at least. Right, or at least there's some attempt at nobility. In terms of, this is for the long-term betterment of society. Right. And I, I get all of that. It, it's. But I like me, the comparison. It, it, it I like the similarities. That's interesting. Yeah, it, it works better whenever. I don't know. I, I, I like it. You know, they're they're not as it, it allows movie Bane to be something that comic book Bane not only can't be, he doesn't aspire to be, you know? And I I like that there's a little bit more similarity between the two characters this way, that he's kind of a surrogate, kind of, sort of, but not really successor, maybe, to 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 Ra's al Ghul. So, I I like that. I I think it's, to me, it's a successful idea. So, Batman's method, uh, sorry, Batman's mission was to use fear and violence to cleanse Gotham City of crime and corruption and all that fun stuff. And at least superficially, the actual truth of this notwithstanding, the superficialities of it, it come down to Bane wants to cleanse Gotham City of corruption and in his mind, 
What that means is basically murdering all of Gotham's captains, uh, captains of industry because they're exploiting the lower classes. And so from the outside looking in, it's pretty apparent, at least to me, that Batman and Bane have fairly similar missions and methods, you know, in the big scheme of things, you know? Now, I've got just a couple of other uh, general notes. Uh, as I said before, The Dark Knight Rises is the only Batman film that doesn't fire up the bat signal at some point or another during the movie, so make of that what you will. I mean, but it's in, it's it's implied that it's used to some extent, I guess? Mm -hmm. Or... Huh. It's, 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 I wonder if they just couldn't get it to look good enough. <laughs> well, there's an argument that the they visual never did in look, these movies. The, so. Yeah, to get, to get the visual to look good enough. Yeah, I guess it didn't occur to somebody to just <laughs> use lasers, but whatever. Uh, next, the chalk drawing of the bat symbol that the little boy makes at the beginning of the film foreshadows Batman's... That foreshadows Batman's, I guess like artificial return to Gotham City the boy draws the symbol and then he asks Blake if Batman's ever coming back and when Batman truly does come back he has Gordon light a torch that symbolizes Batman's return in a fiery outline so the chalk outline it basically represents Batman's attempt at a comeback but he doesn't really quite manage it the torch come back, that truly is Batman's return, I think. So, from a symbolic standpoint, the way that you could view it is the fiery Batman symbol can also, if you're so inclined, be taken to symbolize a funeral pyre as this is Batman's last great act before he's presumed dead. And what is the presumptive cause of his death? A nuclear explosion! So, anyway... Like I say, it all comes back. So there are a lot of, there are other things I could mention, but my point is there are a lot of recurring symbols and themes and motifs that keep popping up in the movie. I understand what people are saying whenever they decry, you know, this problem or that issue or this small detail or whatever. But to me, I guess I'm just, maybe I'm being... I guess kind of blinded by the big picture, it works for me in the end. And you know what? One of the things that I think needs to be said is, yes, this is a little bit of a long movie. I'll be the first to admit that. But Act 1 ends at 1 minute and 16 seconds on the nose. Act 2, get this, ends at 1 minute 57 sec. Uh, sorry, 1 hour 57 minutes into the movie. So Act 1... One hour, 16 minutes. Act two ends one hour, 57 minutes. Act three ends at two hours and 36 minutes. So that second act, it's not, I mean, it's, it's weird. That's what everybody points to and says, man, this movie just bogs the fuck down. But that second act starts at one hour 16 minutes and then ends at one hour 57 that's a pretty fucking short second act it just doesn't feel that way for i don't know what reason it just doesn't feel that way it's weird but there you have it so you have any parting shots or anything else you want to throw in uh no 
no, like I said, but this um, this rewatch um, lifted the movie in my my impression of the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm. Maybe past begins, but to to me, the Dark Knight stands. It stands as I as I said in that episode. It stands head and shoulders above to me most movies ever made. That's okay. I mean, I put it in my top whatever it was, top twenty movies of all time or something like that. Wow, that's that's um, high praise right there. Um, the Dark Knight. I think it's a. I think it's a. It's. I think it's. A, it's a terrific movie, and I like Batman Begins a lot as well. And you know, this one, if you'd asked me, you know, six months ago, would easily have been number three. Um, but I, you know, but on this revisit and this this discussion with you, mm-hmm. I definitely think it's better than I remembered it being. And I think it's it 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 it's fighting with with begins in terms of which of those I I like more. And it's and it's it's not a matter matter of disliking either one. Right. It's a matter of which of those I, I like more. I would almost want to compare this, believe me, in a very only in this one aspect, right? <laughs> I would almost want to compare this actually to the original Star Wars trilogy, and mm-hmm. that what I like about Star Wars, you don't really find that as much in Empire or Jedi. And what I like about Empire, you don't really find that in Star Wars or Jedi. And what I like about Jedi, you don't really find that. That's in, right. In I can see that. So, each movie being kind of a unique part of a whole. I mean, it's. I'm not trying to be cheap. I can see that. Yeah. Whenever I say that, you know, you can't really pick favorite, you know, but it's just they really are different. And so, I guess I might have wanted a little bit more of Batman on screen, you know, tearing shit up in this movie. But we had two movies of that by now, so maybe it was time to shift gears a little bit. I don't know. But and I think, as, as we said in, in the Dark Knight, those action sequences especially the ones that directly included the Joker mm-hmm. were really good. Yes. Hard to top good. And, and as we talked about, again, this was, this was four years between the movies. That's actually quite a long time. Um, and we hypothesize or we know or we think that Nolan was that he had to be convinced to come back uh, for this movie put it that way and maybe uh, that again as as we hypothesized some of that reluctance may have been what to do next how to top myself with the audience reception the critical acclaim of the Dark Knight, there is a sense of go out, leaving, leave them wanting more, right? Right. Uh, so, not coming back to this, you could see the argument, his argument for that. Uh, but given that, given the pressure, I think that what he delivered is is still pretty strong, and and I do think in terms of, you know, maybe saying not wanting to repeat himself trying to do different types of action sequences right that then were in the first one and that's actually what I thought really early on in the movie the very first introduction to Bane because I don't even know if we know him as Bane at this point is like a plane to plane hijacking sort of thing yeah 
And I thought, okay, someone came up, he or his brother or David Goyer came up with the idea, okay, well, here's something we haven't done yet. A, a plane-to-plane rescue. Okay, let's do that. Yeah. You know, it, it gets a sense that was almost, it, it, watching it, I get the sense that was thrown in, okay, we have to start the movie with an action scene, because that's what we did in The Dark Knight. And what can top that? Well, in a sense, nothing can top that. So... Let's make them airplanes. That'll be dramatic. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, 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 there are only so many ways to do a chase scene, to do a fight scene, to do an action sequence, right? And if you've already done them really well, I get, I mean, by critical and audience uh, acclaim, mm-hmm. there's got to be some hesitance, the hesitancy, and, you know, to, to attempt to recreate that or, or to top that in an absurd, you know, w- without going to an absurd level. Right. And the plane-to-plane rescue is pretty close. You know that that scene is pretty close to over the top. It yeah, it, in it the, comes in dangerously. The, in the, yeah, in the bad way, over the top in the bad way. Yeah, it it, it is close to that. It is close to that, um, in terms of amping it up and all that. Hmm. So maybe the choice was to dial back on the action, now give the studio this one big scene that they can put in the trailers, and then and then dial it back and do smaller scale. We're saying smaller scale stuff when we're talking about a nuclear bomb, right? So the stakes are crazy high, but most of the action is one-on-one or has some character elements in addition to just being crazy high adrenaline action scenes. Well, what I usually tell people, if they say that, you know, this movie could have used more action, what I... What, what I usually encourage people to do is just watch one of the action scenes that we get and just type everything that happens. Batman zooms up on his uh, on his motorcycle. Batman punches somebody in the face. Batman uh, runs away from the police. A big car chase uh, ensues. Batman gets away on the bat. And just think about how that played out in the movie. And then... Think about all of those exact same things happening, but what might it look like as directed by Roland Emmerich? <laughs> there's a lot more. Mo- there's a lot of action in the movie, or at least a fair amount of action. It really what what it comes down to is, I guess, staging, performance, and drama. And Nolan wanted all of this to, I guess, there's a style that he's working with that. You know, people eat. Look, if it doesn't work for somebody, I can't. There, there's no logical or rational way for me to right. say you're wrong because part of me actually kind of fucking agrees with them. So how am I going to tell them they're wrong? That means I'm wrong. You know, so no. But, but again, I, I think I, I think as we said earlier, he's not trying to make a dumb action movie. Exactly. And it's I don't know. I mean, what I like about Batman and I think one of the reasons why I'm able to kind of make peace with Nolan's trilogy is that we've got at this point two Tim Burton Batman movies we've got two Joel Schumacher Batman movies three Chris Nolan Batman movies a quarter of a Zack Snyder Batman movie and you and know, a Ben Affleck movie coming down the road yeah at some point or another you know that's happening and at this point there is so much variety to choose from that 
I, I don't know. Maybe it's just the fact that the Nolan verse is over and then just that by itself is giving me, I don't know, a certain amount of peace or a sense of closure or something with these movies that just escaped me when these movies were active and coming out that now you can look back at it and say, well, look, is this my favorite version of Batman? No. And it probably never will be. But there are good ideas here. And the fact that maybe Batman fans are kind of jerks sometimes, or maybe the, that the Nolan fans especially could be, maybe they could be a little too exuberant about it sometimes. You know what? 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now, no one's going to remember that. They're just going to remember, do we like these movies or do we not like these movies? And that's ultimately going to be what's most important. So I give you the final word. Assuming you have one. Um, yeah. If I, I, I'm not saying that this is necess- that these are necessarily my favorite Batman movies. Okay, they are. Uh, but I'm not saying this is my preferred Batman. Even. Mm-hmm. I'm saying that these are excellent films. Yes. Not just. There, there are comic book th- films that do certain things better. There are superhero movies that do things differently. But I think as as movies, as films, I think I think it's a I think it's a pretty great work start to finish. Take taken as a whole. It's not the same as a comic book. It's not that. But as movies, they're pretty good. Agreed. Well, <clears throat> before we go our separate ways, uh, why don't you tell everybody where it is that they can find you? Because as, as I said at the top of this episode, you are, you, you've got your finger in a great many pies, and so people need to be, need to be made aware of that. So uh, take it away. Well, thank you, sir. Uh, most of what, uh, what we do is over at Relatively Geeky relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com There's a variety of mostly comic book podcasts done by myself and my great co-host and progeny, Emily. (laughs) Uh, Together we do the Short Box Showcase, I do the Quarterbin Podcast, and then miscellaneous various and sundry things also come out uh, on that feed. And then for about a year or so, we've got a side project going called Dorkness to Light. Mm-hmm. Dorkness to Light at blogspot.com. Which, which is excellent, is, by the way. That's a good blog in general. Yeah, it's a blog. It's a Tumblr. Uh, uh, and the occasional podcast episode. And that's a much more niche approach. And there we look specifically at the religious, spiritual, theological issues that arise uh, in comic books and other, and other pop culture and it's it's one of those topics that if you have eyes to see if you look there's <laughs> plenty of content plenty of things to talk about in that in that context as well agreed very entertaining <clears throat> very entertaining shows very Thank entertaining you. blog you guys are just great podcasters and uh, I'm happy to be I guess uh uh, a colleague, peer, contemporary, whatever you want to call it. Thank you so much for joining in on this series. This was a ton of fun. Thank you for the invitation. I really appreciate it. Glad to do it. 
And I think that's basically it for the Chris Nolan trilogy, since there are only three movies in any trilogy, and we've done all three of them, so that would be the end of it. So I think that's pretty much it for me and The Professor this week. So bye, everybody. I will see you next week. Boy, who needs a drink? think of podcasts about religion, you probably think of this. But at least one religion podcast sounds more like this. I kick ass for the Lord! Dorkness to Light is a relatively geeky production in which Alan and Emily discuss topics of faith, religion, and spirituality. But we do so through the lens of pop culture, like movies, TV, and comic books, because we're nerds. Our primary focus will be on Christianity, because that's what we know best. But all religious content is on the table. Well, think about it, Scully, from vampirism to Catholicism. This is an occasional cast, to be recorded and released as the mood strikes, with topics ranging from in-depth reviews to personal rants about some small aspect of theology or church history. Because we're theological nerds. If these topics interest you, check out dorknesstolight.blogspot.com for our more regular content. Or dorknesstolight.tumblr.com for our more irregular content. Memes and puns, mostly. My bad. Dorkness to Light. Often irreverent, rarely sacrilegious. You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen, and I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the quarter bin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarter Bin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast on iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny.
Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonzacore of Milan, Italy. <laughs>